A good Wednesday morning to you. It is June 9th. This edition of Real Talk, like every other edition of Real Talk in our show's entire history, is proudly presented by the team at Bitcoin Well. I got a message from a real talker. Uses the moniker Hounds. And the Hounds were up late last night. The Hounds were barking. Hounds was was on Twitter. I don't think doom scrolling. Hounds strikes me as pretty optimistic. But he said, hey, Jespo. He reached out. He said, hey, Jespo, are you up right now? I got it this morning. I wasn't up. It's okay. Hit me up anytime, though. I have my I have my notifications turned down. If you hit me up on Twitter at 3.30 in the morning, I hate to disappoint you. It's not going to wake me up, but I'm still going to see it when I wake up. Hounds said, well, I hope you catch it. This fellow by the name of Nick Carter, he talks about crypto on Twitter all the time. He was holding this uh, Twitter spaces last night. He's facilitating this conversation. And then and then a fella dropped in to talk to him. It just happened to be the president of El Salvador. Popped in on the popped in on the Twitter spaces. Nick Carter tweeted, I am the mainstream media. Well, he's got the president of El Salvador talking to him on Twitter. Naib Bukele. They were talking about the fact that last night, El Salvador, I mean, the vote is official. They've adopted Bitcoin as an official currency. We're going to be talking about that, Sarah Hoyles. That's tomorrow, right? With Bitcoin Well CEO. You betcha. Adam O'Brien's going to be right here on the show. We'll look into that. You can find more about Bitcoin Well under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I find that that music that we play, Sam, we've got a couple of different uh, music beds, those ad beds, but that, that one that we had going there under the Bitcoin well, it, it, uh, under the Bitcoin well mention, it was kind of, it just was making me want to talk more because, you know, like, the, did you guys hear like the ride symbol comes in and then you've got that kind of, you got that kind of like funk guitar, whatever yeah, that, like it, just, it's, it's labeled as a funk, actually, I think that because, you know, when you, when you source music for things like this, they kind of have funny names. That track is literally called at the funk yard at the funk yard well that's what that's what the studio is called is we're yeah, the, the, funk funk the funk yard <laughs> i actually don't mind it being called that we've had we've had some in in the history of the show uh sarah both before and after you have joined us you'll know there, there was a time before me there was a time before the the dark ages yeah. uh yeah no but uh um it was uh what was it yeah the time before it would be <laughs> <laughs> throws me off it's like eight bc and ad something like that you're gonna come up with your own archiving system on the site but there there have been times where we've had we've had nicknames for things flare up and they and and some of them stick for a little bit and some of them disappear uh one of the classic examples i think would would be our live chat for a brief moment for about 18 hours 18 to 72 hours it was called the chatterbox and um and uh, I, I, it never really stuck. But some people, like, we'll still get emails from from some real talkers that are like, "I'll see you in the chatterbox." I'm like, "All right, you hold on." To, I don't. Yeah, that's great. That's all right. Someone gonna, mentioned it in the live chat the other day. Well, that's what they're talking about. And I didn't. I was like, "Who are they calling a chatterbox?" Yeah, I don't no, know. This if is, I'd appreciate it being is, called a chatterbox. It is the chatterbox. Chatterbox is is uh, chatterbox is like gentle sexism from 30 years ago, isn't it? Like, <laughs> it's just gentle. It's tender. Oh, look sexism. at our. <laughs> look at our. It's sensitive sexism. Like, how's how's your grade two class? Well, Ryan, Ryan is just so confident. And and how about Sally? Well, Sally's a little chatterbox. A little bit of a chatterbox. <laughs> She's a little bit of a chatterbox. How's Ryan? He's very assertive. How's Sally? She's very bossy. 
bit of a bitch. <laughs> She's a bit of a bitch. <laughs> Just sensitive sexism, you know? So, uh, good morning to everybody. I'm expecting this to be... Well, we've already taken on systemic sexism in the first 45 seconds. Our work here is done. Uh, time to get to Tourism Jasper's My Jasper Memories. Uh, no, that's going to be coming up a little bit later on today. That's all, that's become quickly a highlight of our Wednesday mornings. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to today, not just because they sent us... 12 cold ones uh, just a while ago, in, in addition to the Real Talk beer fridge, which you probably saw if you subscribe uh, or if you, you follow me on Instagram. And if you religiously view my Insta stories, you would have seen yesterday uh, the addition to the Real Talk beer fridge. And our thanks to the, the team at Jasper Brewing Company and Tourism Jasper for that. Uh, you also would have seen Jespo's best summer ever pizza, which I was showing off. I picked a couple up from Mercer Tavern last night. This has just been like plug after plug after plug. I'm but it's itching just, to try one. But it's just, you have to try oh, you, you Promise so me you will get there. Promise me that, oh, are you, well, mm, the bacon might might be a bit Can of an issue for Saul's you, Hoyles. bacon? I mean, I guess you could. But then I'm gonna not get the full. But then you're Jespo not gonna have the full. Experience. If you don't have, if you don't have the crunch, okay. So the, so the bacon's there for two reasons. So just a quick reminder to everybody: through Pride Month, through the month of June at Mercer Tavern, um, if you live, you know, obviously where we live, if you're in Edmonton or surrounding area, and if not, I mean, get here because it's gonna be worth the trip. Um, proceeds from the pizza are gonna go to Pride Tape through the month of June. The pizza is, uh, it's it's got this really great crust. Carrie, my wife, she yesterday she has a piece she says there's something about the cross she said it's kind of like a flatbread i was like i know and she was like how do they do that i was like no fucking idea i'm not the chef what do you mean but how do they do it i have no idea but they're making it look i didn't put it that way to her by the way i'm a little bit more gentle at home than that (laughs) again back to lesson number one out of the gates today uh but it's it's so it's like it's not like this like sopping like red pasta pizza you know like pepperoni meat lovers weighed down it's like a summer pizza. It's the best summer ever pizza. If you're on the patio or if you're taking it to go, you can actually even order them from their website. This is a free mention. This should this should be 10 seconds, not 10 minutes. Uh, you can actually pick them up to bake them at home, which I like, too, which is a great idea. Shrimp, pesto, and not just like pesto out of a jar, like, like homemade, unbelievable pesto. It's actually, they nailed the pesto. Fresh uh, basil and garlic in there. Oh my mm. gosh, right? Okay, and, hang uh, on. What you, I did not realize there was a bake at home option. I thought yeah, it was available man. there or for no, like fresh man. takeout. No, man. Yeah, oh, you can bake it. this is great. We just, we want to make it available to no matter what your circumstance, no matter what your comfort level. Some people are back out on the patios and some people are going, ah, I'm going to kind of hang tight. Cool. That was the point. It's, mm. it's like the, there, there's a lot of thought that went into this piece. Pizza. Uh, so you've got your shrimp, your pesto, your crispy bacon, and then we finished it off with feta cheese. Um, we were I was given the op- chef came out when we were doing the testing and she says uh, she's done two of them up and they just look phenomenal. She says this one's all feta. And she said this one's like a little bit of feta and matzah. And she goes, let me know what you think. And we kind of looked and I said, well, what do you think about the matzah? And she, chef kind of went mm, and I kind of went, yeah, it feels feels like you're kind of polluting it. Right. Like it's kind of <laughs> like matzah. If you had a handful of feta and then there's some matzo, I mean, no offense to matzo cheese. It's got its place. But like when you got a pile of feta, what do you need matzo for? My concern would be that if you were to forego, um, I mean, if you were to stay true to your personal convictions (laughs) and forego the bacon uh, that you would miss on both the saltiness that it adds and the crunch. 
and that's sort of a two prong. It's an important addition to the I pizza. I do appreciate texture when it comes to my food. Yeah. So you know what is it mouth feel? Well, what else do vegetarians and vegans do for textures like pencil shavings or wood chips yes, or something like that? Always. I keep just go to the garden and some cedar chips. Well, actually, and... I have like a pepper grinder, but with wood chips in it. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That's great. We are we're gonna get like and and God bless everybody. We are gonna get at least three or four emails from people today. Well meaning folks valued yeah. audience members that are going to write in and they're going to say hey um vegetarian here actually there are some really great options to add texture saltiness to your meals as a matter of fact i welcome those and solicit that feedback because that's the type of thing that i can learn and grow from you know just a side note here um linda p on the chatterbox says perhaps bs for before sarah <laughs> You know, I thought about that, but and I wasn't going to say it. for after Sarah, which I like. I like that. I can get behind that one. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, that's pretty good. It's actually pretty good. It's actually pretty good. I was going to say we could have BS and then we could have like after Super Sarah. So we could have, you know, but I don't know. I'm doing, I'm, I'm trying my hardest. Um, I, I'm prepared to get serious at any point. We have a great show coming up in about, uh, call it half an hour, approximately 25 minutes from now. We're going to talk to a new professor of sustainable and transition finance at the Haskins School of Business, University of Calgary. This is going to be great. They've, they've brought in this heavy hitter. Uh, Dr. Erie Koskinen is going to talk to us about sustainable and transition finance, the whole net zero idea, you know, corporations, in, in some cases, nations looking to go net zero uh, by 2050 in some circumstances that depending on your perspective is either really far away uh, from now or is uh, <laughs> it's either really far away from now or it's coming up really quickly. Uh, 2050. I was so, really interested in what you were saying. I was I was all eyes on Ryan. Yeah. So people were watching me, watching you. That's right. It was watching amazing. Me, watching you. Uh-huh. Uh, coming up in about, uh, what is it, an hour and 20 minutes from now, Rabbi Jill Jacobs is going to get, uh, I, I mean, basically, here's the deal. She's going to get up to speed on Canada. She's already tweeting about it. Um, she's saying, I think she's in New York City, right? She's she's tweeting this City, morning. Yeah. She's tweeting this morning saying, I'm, I'm really excited about doing this Canadian show, Real Talk. She says, Hopefully no Canadian trivia. I've promised the rabbi no Canadian trivia, but in all seriousness, um, this New York City based organization, she's executive director of TRUA, the rabbinic call for human rights. Um, Their mandate, more than 2000 rabbis across the United States, uh, North America, uh, working on what, as they say, protecting and advancing human rights uh, in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. Now, to hear a rabbi speak, quite frankly, about occupied Palestinian territories is going to be an interesting circumstance. And and I know that not everybody has an appetite for what Rabbi Jacobs is is likely to say on the show. We know that because we've already received some correspondence on two fronts. Some people are really excited that she's going to be joining us. And some people are saying, hang on a second. I don't know about this, which to me typically indicates that there's going to be a great conversation coming up before that. However, it's our opportunity to continue our conversations with the leaders of Canada's federal political parties. And um, very excited today to welcome to the program um, 
the new leader, relatively new. I mean, she was she was elected. This this leadership vote went rounds and rounds and rounds back in October of 2020. Annamie Paul ultimately emerging the winner, uh, the new leader of Canada's Green Party, of course, taking over after Elizabeth May stepped away after 13 years at the helm. Uh, Ms. Paul, welcome to Real Talk and thank you so much for making time for us today. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You know, as I mean, you've got this question a million times. You're going to roll your eyes and try to find a fresh angle on answering it, I'm sure. But when a lot of people in Canada think about the Green Party, they're going to think about Elizabeth May. She was the face of the party for such an extended period of time. What does your stamp on the Green Party look like? And, and how do you believe, even in the early stages, that your leadership is different from Ms. May's? Well, you know, I know that so often in politics, that's always the question you get asked. How are you different? How are you different? It's, it's really not about that in our party. First, uh, people should know that our policies are developed by our members. Um, and so this really isn't about imposing top down uh, anything on them. I'm there to be their strong voice, their green voice. Uh, certainly being who I am, coming from a different part of the country, coming from a different generation, uh, having a different uh, a different lived experience, a different professional experience. Uh, I bring all of that to this role and that's certainly going to affect the way that I uh, approach it. But in both of our cases, our job was to make sure that green values, green policies um, that the members had developed were getting a really strong um, strong voice, strong representation in us. And that is a legacy that I'm really proud to continue. When you talk about green values, I'm sure that there are many Canadians that when they think of the Green Party, they think of environmental activism. And that's what the Green Party is all about. But I suspect you're going to tell us it's about more than just that. Well, if they think about that, they should, because I definitely want to make sure that they do, especially at this moment when it is so important for all of us to be doing all that we can to bend the curve on our warming uh, planet and our rising greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so that is something that, you know, I'm not shying away from. I, I want us to be associated with that. I want people to know that if they're looking for the most exciting, innovative, uh, positive uh, policies on the environment and on the climate, they should look to us. Uh, we, you know, we have the plan, we have the solutions. Uh, we want to work with the other parties on them. In addition to that, though, as I said, I am someone who grew up in Toronto. I grew up in the inner city. Uh, I grew up in an immigrant family. And so, uh, you know, it's, I have, I think, a lot of credibility when I talk about social issues as well. It's very important to me to be talking about social justice, completing our social safety net. Uh, and I think that, again, being who I am, people can imagine that even as the leader of the Green Party, those are priorities for me. And I've been spending a lot of time during the pandemic, especially as someone seeking to represent a community like Toronto Centre, talking about uh, how we can ensure everyone is able to live a life of dignity. I want to talk big picture issues in just a minute, but you, you touch on Toronto Center. L let me ask you, you ran in a, in a recent by-election in that riding when when former finance minister Bill Morneau uh, wrapped up his political career and or at least for now, let's say. And uh, and uh, it, relatively speaking, pretty tight vote. I mean, the liberals held the seat um, with, uh, you know, we'll call it ten and a half thousand votes or so. You were right behind him with about you know, about eighty three hundred approximately. I mean, the margin, that's a that, that's a margin that, I, you know, if I'm you, obviously, and, and I'm pretty sure you've 
committed to run again in that riding next federal election. Um, that's that's a distance that can be made up with the right campaign. How do, how do you close that distance between yourself and who the liberal candidate will be? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I ran in 2019 in Toronto Centre too. So this is, you know, this is a riding that I have a lot of connections to. My mom started her teaching career just down at Lord Dufferin there at the, the corner of Parliament and um, uh, Dundas. And my grandma worked uh, as a personal support worker in the hospitals. And I was born in the riding. So it means a lot to me. And in 2019, the Liberals won that seat by over 35%. That was the gap. And so it was really encouraging to see that result. And I think that there were a lot of people, had they known how close it was going to be, uh, would have uh, would have voted either a different way or would have shown up to vote because you know that uh, turnout for by-elections is pretty low. So we're just doing the work. You know, we're, we, I mean, I'm so excited. I have this platform now. Uh, so that I'm able to meet with community organizations. I'm able to ask them what they need in real time. Uh, we have a huge group of volunteers that's out there in the community doing work right now. So every day we're trying to demonstrate what it would look like to have me as their MP, what their representation would look like, what kind of a difference it would make uh, to them. And I'm hoping that that is going to um, be enough to convince them that they're ready for, for something new. They're ready for the representation that I can offer uh, and that I'm really committed uh, for the long run to this community. Um, and I mean, I've, I've, I've like every other Canadian, I think, you know, is 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 heartbroken and appalled by what happened in, in London, Ontario on uh, Sunday. This family uh, just just absolutely, I mean, wiped out. I mean, it's just a horrific act of violence, a mass murder. I mean, I think people are rightfully calling it terrorism. I noted, you know, yesterday, a, a friend of mine and a former colleague, um, a woman of color, a proud Muslim woman of color is anchoring a national newscast from the crime scene and uh, she posted on her personal social media how difficult it was for her to do that last night um, you know your perspective as a, a federal political leader how is it how is it shaped by I mean you mentioned your your parents as immigrants yourself as a first generation Canadian how does that shape uh, your approach to politics it, it, you know you're 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 always able to speak uh, and to design policies that are, are more effective when you when you have that kind of personal experience. It's one of the reasons that in everything that I do, I try to make sure that I am uh, being a pretty faithful uh, reflection of what I'm hearing from communities that are most directly impacted. Uh, for instance, in the case of, of the London um, the London massacre, the tragedy, uh, my first question wasn't my first action wasn't to say, okay, this is what I would do. Uh, the, my first uh, action was to say, "What do you need me to do? You know, what can I do for the community? What are what are what are what can I do as your humble servant?" And I think a lot of that comes from being from a community that often has strategies and policies and legislation imposed upon it uh, by others who have created it that aren't living the same experience that I am, and that therefore can't know uh, what the impacts uh, of it might be. So I always try to bring that humility uh, to, to the work. I always try to make sure that I consult. Uh, and certainly having more people like me, having more diversity in parliament would absolutely transform the way that we design public policy. And it would absolutely make it uh, more effective and more sustainable. So I'm trying to also attract more people like myself uh, to our party and other parties uh, because I know it would make a huge difference. 
Yeah, we, you know, we as a, a talk show, obviously, we've been hosting conversations on on, uh, I mean, you know, the anti-Muslim, you know, this this these hate crimes this in London. Uh, we're talking about the Kamloops, the former residential school, these 215 souls discovered there and having some really difficult uh, and important conversations uh, about, you know, race in Canada, racism, systemic racism in Canada um, conversations. I mean, e- even sort of anecdotally, people telling us how this year's Canada Day will look different to them or whether or not they intend to to cancel Canada Day to give people an idea of, of what the Green Party approach looks like on, on issues like these issues of racism and reconciliation from a political standpoint, from a policy standpoint. Uh, where's your head at? right now well these are long-standing priorities of our party and even as a candidate in the leadership race i spent a lot of time as you can imagine trying to um, grapple with these questions trying to offer uh, offer solutions uh, trying to more than anything uh, make sure that my platform was being used uh, being shared uh, with those uh, leaders who are able to speak for themselves. So in the case of the Indigenous community, for instance, uh, last National Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, I, um, I worked on a joint declaration with Rissel Khoi, who actually, uh, her nation is, uh, is, is, is the site of the Kamloops uh, Indian Residential School. And last year we worked on a joint statement together as a Black woman and an Indigenous woman about uh, what we wanted to see, you know, about the importance of respecting the calls to action, the calls for justice, also about the importance of celebrating who we are. Um, because often when we think of, of the Black experience in this country or the Indigenous experience, it's usually uh, in the context of racism, it's usually in the context of tragedy, but we want people to know that, uh, that we're proud. Uh, we want people to know that we are accomplished, that there is no field of human endeavor in Canada that we haven't had an impact on. That's incredibly important to us as well. Uh, and from this platform that I have, um, being able to say consistently thing, basic things like systemic racism is real, um, that the work out on reconciliation has to be prioritized, repeating the calls to action, repeating the calls to justice is work that I'm very proud of and, and I try to do in one way or another every day. We're going to be talking to a, a professor from uh, his name's Dr. Uh, Erie Koskinen out of the University of Calgary, the Haskane School of Business. He's, they've just brought him on uh, in the role of sustainable and, and transition finance. That's his wheelhouse. And he's going to be talking to us about uh, essentially net zero by 2050. And there's corporations that are endeavoring to do that, some of them on tighter timelines. And there's entire countries that are making commitments to do that. I mean, President Joe Biden's, I, I think, made some pretty bold statements with regards to where the United States intends to go what does your vision for canada look like and 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 noting that you know the show that you're on live right now uh ms ball certainly a strong western canadian audience a lot of people that have worked in traditional energy what is the future of canada's let's call it even a post-pandemic economy look like yeah so here's where the real talk comes in (laughs) i I love the name of the show i mean let's just have the real talk first and it's difficult for people in canada to hear uh, it's, it's, it doesn't correspond with our image of ourselves, but the real talk is that Canada is one of the worst emitters in the world. We have the worst record amongst G7 countries. We are one of the top five emitters per capita in the world. Uh, every year since we signed the Paris Agreement, our greenhouse gas emissions have gone up. And even during the pandemic, our greenhouse gas emissions went up over 3%. 
so we year on year have continued to increase our greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm also here to give you the real talk that even in its totality, even if we were to do every single element of the, uh, the government's climate plan, every single element of it, we still would not be doing our fair share to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And there is no way that we are going to reach net zero with that plan. Um, now that's something that's disappointing because as you said, the world is moving in a direction and they're pulling away from Canada. You know, the United States, the European Union, New Zealand, even China, they're all moving much more aggressively towards net zero, not only because they understand the implications of global warming, but also because it's a green rush. It is a green rush to become the most competitive green economy in the world uh, and Canada's falling behind. And as the sister of a roughneck uh, out in the oil patch, someone who lost his job during the pandemic, uh, I can tell you first that this and foremost, that this is about the people. This is about ensuring that um, Alberta and Saskatchewan and Newfoundland and Labrador diversify their economies before it's too late. Because Ryan, you and I know that these companies, when there's not one more dollar to be made, they're gonna cut and run and they're gonna leave those communities devastated. Uh, and we know what that looks like. We know what the Rust Belt looks like. We know what happened <clears throat> out in Newfoundland with the fisheries. Uh, we know what it looks like when those companies cut and run. And so this is our chance to make sure those communities are protected, that they have green jobs, that pay more, that let communities stay intact. Um, don't let anyone fool you into thinking that, uh, that um, you know, we're out to do anything other than um, make sure that those communities uh, have a future. So that's what we're here to do. That's what a green recovery is all about. And I mean, you, you, you and I both know, though, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We were having a conversation yesterday. We had the mayors of, of, of uh, two great communities here in Alberta, the mayors of Lethbridge and High River, and both of them really fighting for the quality of the water and the air in their communities. Yeah. They're, they're signing on to this pledge, uh, essentially lobbying or, you know, as best they can, demanding that the provincial government halt, you know, permits and exploration and, and basically, you know, basically shut down they want the eastern slopes of the Rockies shut down to coal mining to sum it up yes. in one sentence um but they're saying you know there's there's communities in the crow's nest pass there's entire communities and 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 you might say to a certain degree who could blame them because you look at who votes and who pays property taxes there these are coal communities this is one example you know you and i could be talking about we could be talking uh, about drilling we could be talking about refining it depends on whatever community you're talking about and these folks are going, listen, you know, I may be a second or third generation coal miner or, or, or there may be a certain cynicism around the green jobs uh, or, or people may hear you mention China and India and they may say, don't try to suggest uh, you're noting per capita, but they're going to say, don't talk to me about Canada's emissions versus China or India's emissions. You know, ours is a drop in the bucket. We're less than two percent. Enemy, you've heard all this before. How do you address that? cynicism i mean and to me if i'm a political strategist and i'm looking decade over decade i'm looking at where world economies are going i'm looking where industries are going i'm wondering if maybe the green party's message if it stays credible to me has the potential to be more and more of a voice right a louder louder voice across the country so how do you address that cynicism at people's front doors at town halls what do you say well, that's a big part of it. You, you know, you have to do this um, at a very human level. I think the first thing that we need to um, convince people of is that it really is about them. 
You know, this this really is is about uh, a future for them. That is really what we're thinking about. Uh, whether it's in terms of making sure that we have a livable planet or making sure that there are good paying, safe, stable jobs uh, for communities uh, that have a future. Um, and as I said, you know, I gave that example of the Rust Belt and, and we, we have, we've had this, these cycles before where governments uh, combined, with, combined with corporate interests have uh, just held on too long and they have said things like they're coming to take your jobs, they're coming to take your jobs, knowing full well that the jobs were eventually going to uh, disappear uh, and with no plan in place. So I don't blame people for being cynical when they hear that message over and over again from, uh, from, their, um, from their government, from the local level of government. Uh, that that this is about it. That's a choice between the jobs uh, and the environment. But it really it really isn't. And and you're absolutely right. More and more now, uh, we can see that the countries that are planning for the future are the ones that are moving towards a green economy. Um, there is a lot of money to be made in this green economy. It's a green rush. That's that's what it is. That's what's going on right now. There's a green rush, and Canada can either be a part of it or it can be left behind. Um, that's really the question. That's really the choice now. But it all starts with that meeting in the town hall, face to face with people, saying, "Look, I am part of your community. You know, I I actually live here, and I want to live here. You're my neighbor. Uh, I'm thinking about how we're going to keep our community viable 20, 30, 40 years into the future. Um, it has to start at that human level." If you're just tuning in, uh, live streaming our audio on the Mixler audio app, we're talking to the leader of Canada's Green Party, Anime Paul. Uh, I want to give you a chance to punch up uh, before we go and before we thank you for your time. So I want to ask you about the federal government, a minority government, and I want to ask you about the official opposition right now, Canada's conservatives, specifically on environmental policy i'm just gonna people are gonna say oh you're throwing her a big softball that's exactly what i'm doing i'm not i'm not even doing that i'm not even throwing it i'm putting it on the t we're playing t-ball right now uh the environmental performance of the federal government of the liberals how would you characterize it well as i said the the performance it's actually that's that's the perfect word that's the perfect word more real talk the perfect word is performance uh it is it is performative. It is, um, they know full well, uh, because the scientists have told them that what they have proposed is simply not going to be good enough. It's not going to, it's not going to be enough to get us to net zero by 2050. It's not enough for us to do our fair share. Um, it's, it's just simply not enough. Uh, there, there just is no way for a country like ours where so much of our greenhouse gas emissions come from uh, the oil and gas sector to design a climate plan uh, that doesn't involve uh, making decisions and, and making changes in that sector. So we can't continue to build uh, pipelines. We can't continue to support um, frac gas projects. Uh, we can't continue to green light oil exploration projects and have any hope of doing our fair share. So we always want to work with all of the parties on the climate. It should not be a partisan issue at all. It should be guided by the science. Um, we've always called for us to come together, whether it's as a committee of the whole or an inner cabinet to work on uh, the climate uh, together. Uh, but I do know that right now at this moment, uh, people in Canada need a party that is going to give that real talk on the climate and propose solutions uh, as well and give people some hope and some excitement about what could be. 
because this could be one of the greatest opportunities that our country has ever seen. Uh, I want us to uh, be ambitious enough to take a hold of it. And, you know, Ryan, out on, I, I should say that out on the prairies, when you ask uh, people, uh, can we be ambitious? Do you want us to be ambitious? Do you think we have to choose between the economy and the climate? They're, the answer is no different than in Ontario or Quebec or British Columbia. You know, people should know that the, the division is a political one. It's not between the people. I've got I'm trying to track down the specific comment I saw the, a couple of people are saying you know hey listen like there's rural communities that are wide open this is from uh, one of our uh, regular commenters it goes by the handle some random guy he says you know that a lot of rural <laughs> a lot of rural communities are actually very open to transitioning from fossil fuels but they're afraid of not being a part of it because nobody offers a solution to keep their livelihoods uh, another we got it. what is it <laughs> we've got it we've got it tell tell uh, some some it, random some guy random. yeah Tell some random guy that uh, that he can get in touch uh, with my office and we'll share those solutions because even in the leadership race, we uh, put out a whole policy on rural revitalization. And, you know, you're absolutely right. It is completely unfair to ask people um, to not take the jobs that are available in their communities. You know, I mean, if the jobs that are available are jobs in mining uh, or jobs in um, in extraction, you know, uh, extractive industries, then those are the jobs and, and, and it's just a terrible thing to vilify people for looking to make a living for themselves and their families. So if we are going to um, give, I mean, if we are going to do our job as, as political leaders, our job is to offer alternatives, is to offer alternatives that people can take because you're right, they are willing to take them, but they have to be offered. They have to exist in the first place. And this is the chance as we leave the pandemic, as we, as we move to the hopefully soon the post-pandemic period that we have the money to spend on investing in the kind of economic diversification, the kind of rural revitalization projects that are going to make those jobs uh, possible, those alternative jobs. So uh, one thing that people should know about me, as I said, as someone whose, whose brother worked in the sector until recently, I will never vilify the people who do this work or who have done this work um, I'm going to try to make sure that they have other options. Um, that's that's really my job. You know, it's not to divide us. Yeah. And, and I know that a lot of people will appreciate that comment. I've seen I, in, a, in a lot of ways, you know, I think people just need to be remind. I think I mean, I'm going to say the most obvious thing of all time here. Uh, but when you talk, you know, well, people are like, oh, so, you know, Jesperson talking to another elite, you know, some 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 highfalutin lawyer done a bunch of work in international law out of Toronto, what she can understand. And then you've got this credibility. You go, let me tell you about my brother. Right. And and what I think a lot of people out here, there's this there's this alienation, which, by the way, politicians are the worst culprits of whipping yeah. this up, right, pouring gasoline on this fire. You know, Ottawa, yeah. Justin Trudeau hates Alberta. Ottawa is not listening. All this, you know, vote, federal votes are always over by the time we hit Winnipeg, all this this type of idea. Yeah. But I think when people, you know, when people have busted their asses and been away from their families and worked, you know, three weeks on one week off and, you know, 18 hour days and whatever the case may be. Um, and, you know, and they're, they're keeping the country powered and they're driving the Canadian economy and all these types of things. And they're very proud. And and you look at me, you know, you've seen the bumper stickers, Canada proud, Alberta proud. Yep. This, you know, I love I heart Canadian oil, all this kind of stuff. When people feel like I think that they're being personally vilified when they're being called the enemy, when they read words like dirty. Right. Then then people start to to automatically get defensive. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and can I just say, I think that the tone that you're taking uh, is an important one because I think people 
people need to be encouraged and, and, and feel supported. Now, for whatever reason, I will say to also state the obvious, here's some other real talk. I've, I've lived in this province for the majority of my adult life. And sometimes even that lands with a thud. I have seen government announcements, including federal government announcements that say we're clearing up millions of dollars for retraining. We're going to send you back to school and we're going to invest in this. And people still, you know, still tell Trudeau to, you know, fuck himself, basically. So, I mean, that does still happen. But, um, well, you've you know, got to believe it, right? So you've got to believe that it's actually going to happen. And, and one of the things I should say, because it, it surprises people to hear it, but the United States is even in the Trump years, because a lot of what happens is at the state level, not the federal level, has actually gone further uh, towards this um, this move to a green economy. And so we we know what, and and so we know what happens uh, when when people move out of the fossil fuel sector. Uh, and what we what we have found is that uh, those workers, the skills they have, are immediately transferable. So there's no big you have to go back to school and do some big retraining for several years. You know, there, there's none of that. These jobs uh, pay between nine and 19% more. Uh, these jobs are um, more stable. They require, as you said, less time away from your family. They're safer. Uh, and these are jobs where half of the people working in, in the green sector on green jobs, half of them uh, in the States uh, have a high school degree or less. They don't even have any college, uh, any college. So, you know, these are jobs, this is, this is extraordinary because these are jobs that people can take on day one with the skills they have, with the education that they have. Um, and again, these are the messages that they, uh, our political leadership should be communicating, uh, but they're not. And so people, again, they're, they're confused, they're worried, they, they can't see the future clearly. Uh, that's really the job. And just one last thing I wanted to say, you never forget where you came from. I have done all of those things that you said, but my family, you know, they they came here from a rural community, from an island of 9,000 people. They grew up in a farming community of probably about 100 people. Uh, they ate what they grew. And uh, when I, when as I was growing up here, you know, there were six of us in that one-bedroom apartment. Mm. Okay. <laughs> uh, and yes, I have a law degree, but I had to pay for every single cent of that degree myself working full-time every summer, working three jobs uh, part-time during the school year. I paid every single cent of that. And you never forget that. And How so when I talk about these issues, I'm talking about it from the experience of someone who's known what it is to be hungry, what it is to have to work all the time, you know, what it is um, to again, come from a community other than a, a big city. I mean, I know all those things and I'll never forget it. And you're, you're always hopefully going to see it reflected in um in my approach to politics, you know, I really hope I never lose touch with any of that. And I mean, I, I'm just going to be honest because we're doing this live. We've got to do this yeah. this way as opposed to me asking yeah. your team. But I want to respect your time. I, I, everything you're saying, I'm just getting more and more and more questions here. If you have to go, you just let me know. Do we have to cut? What's, what's your next commitment? Oh, is, is, it like, is it right this minute? I am not a master of my own time either, but let me check and see uh, quickly. Let me see. And, and yeah, yeah, we've got a few more. We've got okay. a few more minutes. Um, please go ahead. Well, great, because I, let, let me tell you here, I'll give you the sort of the docket. If we had fancier graphics, we'd have a we'd have something on the side of the screen saying coming up next. And we'd be able to say, but you've just touched on something. And I, I'm talking to law students and MBA students and students at the University of Alberta that are seeing. I don't know if you've seen this story, Annamie, but, um, you know, provincial cuts and other factors are contributing to tuition in some cases 
is rising 70 or even 100 percent in faculties. Uh, Jagmeet Singh was talking to us last week, talking about I think he said it was eight grand a year when he went to law school, says it's 30 grand a year now. Um, Does the does the federal Green Party or do you personally have a position on post-secondary tuition in Canada? We do indeed. And and I guess I'm dating myself here. But when I was a law student, uh, it didn't cost any more to go to law school than to do a bachelor's degree. There was no there was no markup on on the degree. Um, So even though I had to work every second of the summer uh, and work part time, I was able to graduate without debt, which is just virtually inconceivable now. So the Green Party has been really strong on this. And it's something that we have been talking about, particularly during the pandemic because we, we've heard Statistics Canada say that we're at risk of losing uh, one or two generations of young people in terms of uh, their future earnings, in terms of their job prospects, in terms of their, um, their rates of graduation. Uh, the jobs weren't there last summer. Uh, they're still not there this summer because we haven't reopened. And so we've called uh, for the government and parliament, really every party to agree to extend the Canada Emergency Student Benefit for this summer again, because you know we're, we're in June now and there are so many students that still don't have jobs. And I can tell you, I couldn't have afforded to go back to school in the fall if I hadn't worked every single day of the summer um, from, you know, from the time school ends in May. We've also called for uh, um, post-secondary tuition to be abolished. And that's not just university. When we say post-secondary, we mean for you know, um, apprenticeship, for training, uh, for colleges, uh, it should be abolished. We should join countries like Germany, um, um, Sweden, Denmark, uh, France, countries that either have very low tuition or no tuition at all. We should, we should, um, we should forgive the portion of federal student debt that they're holding. Um, that these are the, the investments that we should be making in young people. It is completely wrong that, uh, that there's a gap between students who can afford to go to school and those who can't. We are creating inequalities that we're going to be living with for a long time. Uh, and this is not the Canada that, uh, that, that, that I studied in. So we're, we're really strong on that. I think that we're the only party, uh, we still remain the only party to call for the abolition of post-secondary tuition. And before anyone says this is pie in the sky, please know that there is a huge handful of major economies around the world with economies just as strong as ours, where you do not have to pay for your post-secondary education. So it's affordable and we can't miss out on investing in our future in this way. Uh, that is true. It's un, it's undeniable. There are countries, like you said, like major economies uh, where that is the case. I would the, the, the typical. Yeah, I mean, yeah, people may have heard of it. Um, there, there's this uh, there. The, the typical uh, talk show follow up to that is, well, how are you going to pay for it? But I would like to at this moment honor one of our audience members, Jillian, who used all caps in, to respond to a recent political interview I did. And it said off the top of my head, it burned itself into my memory. Her comment said something like, here he goes again with the how are you going to pay for it? She says you pay for it like you pay for anything else you find a way to pay for it governments pay for things all the time we'll leave it at that for now 
I'm fascinated to ask you about the party dynamic. I mean, you've you've talked about how policy is is basically a grassroots thing. Um, you know, yeah. you you've been policy development, the members develop it. That I mean, to be honest, Adam, you know, politicians always say that, right? Like, there's one here in Alberta that signed a big yeah he he signed a big placard on the campaign trail a couple of years ago. This fellow by the name of Jason Kenny called the grassroots guarantee, and then people are realizing right now that that didn't mean shit, and so people want to know, well, how do I know for sure that the grassroots guarantee is a real thing how do you ensure that green party members actually develop the policy of the party how do you allow that to happen by the way as a leader i would imagine i have control issues i don't know if i could just allow like the majority isn't always right on that and especially considering the dynamic that the green party draws or can draw which has been a really fascinating thing because for, for people that would they would say oh the green party is a bunch of hard lefties Oh, contraire, right? I mean, you you get some real right wingers when it comes to Green Party members as well. It's a mix. It's yeah, a, I mean, we you know everyone likes to use that word, the the tent, but there there really is a, just a large diversity, you know, diversity of opinions um, between our, our amongst our members. Let's say, um, you know, I, I haven't been at this that long. This is, I think, my eighth month that I'm in now. And I, I'm trying. I want to make sure that I'm only in this as long as 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 I am true to uh, to myself and my values and the commitments that I've made. And one of them is to try to make sure that there is space for diversity of opinions. That you know, this doesn't have to be threatening. Uh, this doesn't have to you know mean that my leadership is being undermined. There should be space within political parties for diverse views. That's how you develop good public policy through that cut and thrust of ideas through compromise through conversation so it's something that i welcome as long as it is respectful as long as it is constructive you know i want to make sure that people feel that they can voice their opinions uh, without being uh, attacked for them and that's really the key and that is always going to be a work in progress i mean i will not pretend that our party does that perfectly. Uh, and I also am trying to do things proactively to make sure that the members do have a bigger voice between conventions, because you are absolutely right. It's one thing to have a policy convention every couple of years uh, and have policies on the book. It's another thing for members to be um, involved between conventions. So we're going to be inviting members soon to um, apply to be part of our, uh, what we're calling knowledge clusters. They're going to be uh, people helping our shadow cabinet critics uh, in their policy work. Uh, so that's a way for them to contribute between conventions. We had an open recruitment, Ryan, for our shadow cabinet, where we made an invitation to all of the members to apply uh, to be considered for the shadow cabinet uh, so that we took it out of the shadows. And that's something that also is completely uh, brand new. So I'm trying to make things as transparent and accessible as possible and to give members an opportunity to have a say in our policies in real time. So and I hope, you know, you can, you should invite me back and see if uh, if I'm if I've been, uh, you know, if I've been walking, walking the talk, if it was actually real talk. And uh, I'm really counting. I have to say I'm counting on our members and I'm not worried about that, but also on you and the rest of the media to keep me honest about these things. You know, I'm saying these things very explicitly 
so that you can always say to me, but you said this. So what happened yeah. if I ever if I ever stray from the, you know, the good and righteous path? So we're so we're witnessing a federal political party leader uh, asking to be held accountable and volunteering to appear again on the show. Those are two big right. ticks in the right column uh, on our standpoint. And the door will always be open to you. I look forward to further conversation. Let me close with this. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I asked you to assess the federal government's performance on the environmental front. And I'm curious to know how you'll assess the official oppositions as well. Um, let me tee up the question by I, I want you to clarify something if you don't mind you talk about canada as, as a big emitter uh, per capita the numbers are undeniable uh, people can always twist and, and and present facts and statistics however they like though you can also uh provide evidence that canada's greenhouse gas emissions are, are, are less than two percent of of the global total and so so you can have that sort of back yeah, and forth i think most people are familiar with that debate uh, when you noted about canada's track record there was some conversation in our live chat about people saying hang on a second though we're a big vast nation a nation with arctic territory a nation with frigid temperatures obviously we're going to consume more energy i suspect you might be talking about industrial emissions i don't know but i'm hoping you can clarify um and also then to wrap this up the official opposition it was noteworthy when leader aaron o'toole who i I think is trying to obviously grow his party in in the writings like where you're trying to win in toronto center in toronto in vancouver in montreal etc the urban centers he knows he's got to be more more moderate. He knows he's got to have a vision when it comes to environmental policy. That's what voters said Andrew Scheer did not have, uh, which is probably why he didn't form government back in October. So so what do you make of, of the the uh, note by some of our listeners about Canada and its emissions? And, and what would you say to uh, conservatives that, that might be looking at Aaron O'Toole and saying, hey, I mean, is this a good sign? Is our politics tracking in the right direction does it provide some encouragement to you that at least generally speaking policy is going in the right direction uh it's always encouraging to see movements in the right direction i guess my caveat would be that we don't have a lot of time you know i i it's it's difficult because you know i yes okay now i'm going to again it's going to sound quite quite elitist but uh, the work that I was fortunate to do as a diplomat for our country and at uh, the, the, you know, the International Criminal Court taught me that change takes time and it's very hard to, to rush it, especially when you're changing people's attitudes. And I know that that is part of what has to happen within the, the Conservative Party. Um, and I'm hopeful that one day they will get there. I mean, we can see more and more that people who, I mean, Joe Biden, for instance, President Biden, this is someone who was very much uh, considered to be at the center or even slightly the center right of his of his party. And here he is at the, at the vanguard of, of the global uh, climate movements and, and, and global leadership and going far and beyond what we have committed to here in Canada. So it is possible that that change uh, can happen. I believe in it, uh, but we, we just need it to hurry up because what I want to have, as I said, is a true partnership with all of the political parties, with all of the political leaders where we say, you know, this is um, not only a challenge, but it's an opportunity for Canada. How can we design the best plan, the best policies uh, to take advantage of this opportunity and to do our part? How can we set up Canada for the future? Uh, I believe that, again, this is something that we should be able to come together on the way that parties did in the early days of the pandemic. We would never have gotten the action that we did if we if we hadn't uh, worked as as a cross-partisan committee of the whole on on tackling the pandemic. And so let's apply that here. So I welcome this. I welcome the efforts. I I very much would like to work with the Conservatives um, and any party on uh, on on this. And as I said, time's a wasted. 
<laughs> you know, it, times of times moving on. Uh, we don't have that much time left. And so whatever is going to be done needs to be done um, as quickly as possible. Just real quick, when you talk about Canadian emissions, are, are, are you talking about cumulative? Are you talking about residential? <laughs> are, are you talking about commercial, industrial? Wh- wh- where do you see, I mean, I, I'm sure you're going to say across the board, we can all take our own steps, all these types of things. But but generally speaking, is it industrial emissions that concern you the most? So our, our, our fossil fuel sector accounts for about a quarter, just a, a bit more. It depends, let's say 25 to 27% of our emissions. Um, our buildings account for about another 17% of our emissions, the agricultural sector about the same amount. Uh, so you can see that the, big, the biggest chunk of the pie is from the fossil fuel sector. Uh, and so there is no way that we can, even as I said, with all the other things, even with significant reductions in the other sectors, there is no way for us to get um, to the reduction we need, which is 60%, not 40%. Uh, reductions below 2005 levels if we don't figure out an approach uh, to the fossil fuel sector. It's, it's just simply, it's just math. It's not possible. And when I talk about as being one of the top emitters in the world, it actually doesn't include the emissions that we contribute to uh, through our exports. Uh, it's really about what, we, what we're emitting here in Canada. So again, this is this, is, this, this isn't where we want to be as people in Canada. Whenever I tell people in Canada this, they're actually very surprised because we really have a, an image of ourselves uh, as being a green country, as being a, a global leader on, uh, on climate policy. Uh, but you have to acknowledge where you are so you can get to where you want to go. So as I, as I acknowledge where we are, I know we have everything it takes uh, to get to where we want to go. And I know for sure that people in Canada want us uh, to get there. So... I'm, I'm ready to, you know, do the work with, uh, as I said, any party that's ready to work with us. And I hope that whatever your political stripes, even if you've decided you will never vote green ever in your life, that you will tell um, the party you prefer that you want this to be a priority, that you want them to go to Ottawa ready to get to work on this issue. And we can disagree on other things, but let's try to all agree on this one thing. little feedback for you before we thank you for your time. Uh, hope is watching she says great interview she says i've been intrigued by anime now i'm interested the transition from intrigued to interested anime so there you go that's a big one uh what about this i, th- I think that uh, uh lisa says what a great reintroduction to the green party for me she says thanks for this interview um louisa says anime paul very impressive the national media rarely gives her more than a soundbite but hearing her here in long format really shows how smart and prepared she is. Interesting. Some random guy chiming back in, by the way, he heard you say his name. Says, I'll be interested yeah. in seeing how the federal election looks next time around. Says, I'm still not leaning toward any particular party, but the Greens could be a viable fourth. Interesting. That's some interesting feedback there. I'll take it. I'll take it. Something to work with. Baby steps. You you and I are in, we're not in the same position, but we're in similar positions right now. I mean, hey, if I'm I'm the fourth source of media for folks in Canada right now, early in the tenure, fine by me, baby. But they're watching in the rear view mirror. They're not looking through their windshields anymore. Up, up and away. Thank you for the conversation, Anami. I've really, really enjoyed this. Thanks for making time for us. It was really a pleasure. Thanks so much for the great questions and thanks for everyone who tuned in. 
um, yes, invite me back, keep me honest, and, uh, and and put me to work. You got okay? it. You got it. We'll have the All podcast right. up later this afternoon. You can blast it out to everybody, Enemy. Thank you so much Great. for this. That's Thank Enemy you Paul. So much. Take care. You bet. As of October of last year, that's the, the new leader of uh, Canada's Green Party. I mean, I didn't really touch. I didn't sort of give the full CV. A lot of times with guests, you're kind of just you want to get into it. Let's get moving here. And sometimes they start to get a little bit bashful. But I mean, you know, she's she's got, you know, a master's degree out of Princeton. Uh, Might have heard of it. A bachelor of laws at the University of Ottawa. She's called to the bar in Ontario. She's worked as a director for a, a, a conflict prevention uh, NGO in Brussels as an advisor at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, as a political officer in Canada's mission to the European Union. She's co-founded and co-directed an innovation hub in Barcelona, Spain, for international NGOs working on global challenges. She's worked on the Climate Infrastructure Partnership, the Higher Education Alliance for Refugees. Uh, She founded and directed the Canadian Center for Political Leadership, uh, which is a nonpartisan charity that trains women and underrepresented minorities to run for elected office. So, I mean, really an impressive candidate. Um, She knows that she's she's, you know, swimming upstream with, you know, in the sense, I mean, to to paint this uh, picture, uh, you know, a bit of perspective when it came to the federal election back in 2019. So you've had the liberals that won uh, just under 40 percent of the of of the vote, uh, generally speaking, uh, uh, or no, probably that's not, you know, yeah, percentage of vote, 184 seats, right, out of 338. Uh, the conservatives at uh, 32, uh, 99 seats, as you know, the, the New Democrats with 44 seats. The Bloc Québécois with ten, and you, you've got the Greens. Or pardon me, I'm looking at. Uh, I'm looking at the wrong. What are you looking what at? What am I even looking at? What I'm looking at. I'm completely wrong. I'm way off here. I'm looking at. I'm looking at a table at dissolution. You know what I should do is I should stick to the resources that are provided to me by the producer of this show, oh, Sarah Hoyles, which is maybe why you're right now. I guess what I'm trying to the point I'm trying to make by by shoddily and quickly and lazily looking at these numbers here. <laughs> Yeah, this is, these are the numbers I'm talking about. Liberal, pardon me. That was at dissolution. Okay, that was when that was when the writ dropped. So I was wrong. I was 100 percent wrong. Wrongo bongo. Wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Uh, but but let me just say. So the liberals 157 seats. The conservatives now with 121. This is the minority government scenario mm-hmm. we find ourselves in. The block with 32. The New Democrats with 24 and the Greens with three. So she's not. You know, it's it's like she's aware of where they're at. Mm. It's why I wanted to open the interview relatively early in the process, asking, you know, for people that think you're all about the environment, you're about more than that. Right. And I loved her answer back. She's like, well, I mean, if people think of the environment when they think of us, that's perfect. That's great. That's totally fine. But it's not going to be one of those. You know, I think of like, you know, I think of Rob Ford back in the day and maybe even to a certain degree, Doug. But like you remember that Rob Ford, like in in elections, it'd be like, you know, what do you think about transit funding? Well, speaking of transit, we're going to stop the gravy train. And then it'd be like, well, what do you what do you think about, uh, you know, tax rates for for small businesses or cutting red tape for business? Well, we're going to stop the gravy train. Okay, perfect. What about that playground over there that kids are saying is unsafe? You know, what really needs to happen is the gravy train needs. And you just like one issue, one issue, talking points, talking points. Mm -hmm. And it's effective. Yeah. It's extremely effective. Um, but, you know, people, I think, uh, vote or at least some people determine their vote. That's why I'm really intrigued to see what real talkers are saying about this based on nuanced factors. Like what? Wh- where's this party showing leadership or or vision in this area that's important to me? Or how has this party responded meaningfully or not to, to this challenging circumstance? Or how did this party conduct itself through these challenging times? People can vote. I mean, some people vote 
tried, tested and true. They've got the, the party logo tattooed on their arm. You know, they've, they've you know, their, their house is painted the color of their favorite party, you know, th- this sort of thing. And then other people are open to, you know, I mean, they're, they're what we would call the undecideds. Right. And those are really who a lot of politicians, when they're door knocking, are looking to talk to. So enemy Paul has got this audience of, of undecideds. I'd be curious to see. I mean, could they could they could they have five seats? Could they have 10 seats next election? You know, wilder things have happened. Um, I'll look forward to further conversations with her. I'm always going to regret how I blew it at the end, reading all the wrong numbers. It's going to drive me. It's just right. Something right away. Red flags are going. These don't seem this right. Seem right. This doesn't feel right. You know where it was? It was the percentage of vote. The conservatives mm-hmm. actually had, you know, in Canada, we don't really talk about the popular vote. It's not really a thing. But the conservatives, as you know, more votes than the liberals. But it doesn't matter. They just dominated in writings that they were going to win anyway. Um, but still, if you're looking for, you know, remember we're talking that the morning after that federal election uh, back in the fall of 2019, uh, doing a show as a matter of fact that morning out of toronto won't forget it it was a, an interesting vibe and people were trying to make sense of it going look at this the conservatives have all these votes but lost the election and sort of you know was was a discouraging result you can find silver linings there and positives uh but at the same time you know you still didn't win at the end of the day whether or not you're finding positives and silver linings you still didn't win and so you've got all these political parties that are trying to you know you, you'll have justin trudeau or the federal liberals saying uh we got to go from minority to majority right the mm. conservatives from we got to go from opposition to government right the nds want to be back and relevant uh, you've, you've obviously got the block which i would think it's that's always a fascinating one for me to watch i kind of gauge you know, as, as, as a lazy Westerner, where's Quebec at? Well, how did the bloc do in the last election? How, mm. That's where you can kind of lazily determine where Quebecers sentiments are. Again, lazy. And then be interested to see some of the other parties. I, I see that, you know, Maxime Bernier is, is doing a freedom rally in our home city today, this afternoon. So, you know what the PPC, I mean, they got absolutely smeared and stomped on last federal election. Does that change? You know, now that he's he's blowing the dog whistle around anti anti white racism like he was yesterday, um, is that going to resonate with people? I would suggest no, but we'll be paying attention to these storylines. I think what's really interesting is you know how the NDP with uh, with Jugmeat they have been saying you know they've been they've been pushing, and it's I think you even made the point you. <laughs> you made the- even me <laughs> even you made a good point no, no, the way that that came out i was like oh, how did that make you feel ryan when you actually made a good point <laughs> that's not what i meant oh my goodness i take it no back. no 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 don't no speak I'm, we're jo- obviously joking i know so am i but right? what was the point <laughs> what was the point all right um was that it's not it's it's really neat to see people not being concerned about like, hey, I'm, is this electability? It's about actually saying what you think and, and pushing the conversation. But they also care about electability. You have to. Care. Well, you have if you to. don't care about electability. What are you doing in the race? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, to me, it's all uh, this is not me being, I, you know, enemy was just on five minutes ago and here I am saying this. But like every politician to a certain degree, uh, it's spin like obviously like that's your job. You know, my, you know, people will say to me, like, you know, uh, people like, like, you're not a journalist, you're an entertainer. And <laughs> Con- <laughs> congrats- dot, dot, dot. congratulations, <laughs> yeah. you know, go, why don't you read more ads? You sell out. Yeah, like literally a sellout. Literally, we sell out to places and products that we believe in. People just want straight talk. 
with a politician. You're just saying that to get elected. Well, if I get elected on this, it means that the majority of the people that voted believed in what I said. So I will consider that to be my mandate. Mm. I just like to hear people say it. I just like to hear people be straight up. But you look at some of the things that go on. Why don't certain politicians show up for certain votes? Why don't certain politicians uh, vote for certain things or not? I mean, you look at Wynn's law. That's a classic example to me. The, the, the liberal members of parliament out of Edmonton in the last government that voted against the law that, that was, was tabled in, in honor of, I suppose, in, in memory of uh, an RCMP member. Uh, Constable Wynn lost his life the outside the Apex Casino and in St. Albert, Alberta. And Wynn's law wanted to give, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I'm probably going to miss and mess up some details, but essentially wanted to have more information on, on um, you know, the accused, people facing charges, more information for judges to review or, or more information, background information involved in the process around granting bail. That was basically it. And. There were MPs, including a senior cabinet minister, Amarjeet Sohi, who's now running for mayor in Edmonton, that voted against. They voted down Winslow. They did not support Wins Law, which was, was put out there by Michael Cooper, an MP out of St. Albert, a conservative MP. And Amarjeet Sohi got absolutely roasted on it. And I know that because I interviewed him shortly after. And, and our, our feedback, our audience feedback was just it was all people wanted to hear him called to the carpet on. And we did talk about it. And he found a way to explain it. You know, the, our federal government is working on on a different we acknowledge this tragedy etc cetera, etc cetera, but we're working on our policy which we believe will be more this that and the other and mm. hey politically that was a very difficult one for him because your constituents in your riding want you to do something but your government your party is telling you that you're going to do something different you know or that it's suggested that you do you know the votes are whipped so to speak so i like when i like politicians i mean it's always everything they're saying is to get elected i mean unless you're always going to have the, the the sort of fringe candidates that are out there just to whatever right the, the one issue candidates mm. the candidates for the so-called low information voters but i'll be curious to see how the, how the green party does it i mean a dynamic first of all a, a leadership race can be huge for a party not totally unrelated. I'm curious to see what's going to happen with the with the Alberta party here in our home province. A leadership yeah. race can either infuse enthusiasm and be a big boon to fundraising, a big cash infusion. And, and a piss poor leadership race can can really be a nail in the coffin of a political party that's been wallowing without strong leadership. So with Annamie Paul steering the Green Party, I think you've got people paying attention. Oh, there's a new leader. Let's hear her out. Let's hear what she has to say. Right. I mean, you never know. I mean, making an inroad into the West. She gives us 45 minutes of her time on this show. I mean, I think that says something. Right. You can let us know what you think anytime to talk at Ryan We are so thrilled every Wednesday to partner with the team at Tourism Jasper to present what has quickly become one of our most favorite traditions. My Jasper memories. Last week, we featured a beloved and incredibly impactful community member. You can check out jasper.travel slash real talk for all of our past features. This week, we want to shine a light, some sunlight, if you will, on the patios in Jasper. Yeah, that's right. If you've been there, you know. I mean, these views are familiar views, aren't they? Jasper, when I think of Jasper and I think of patios... I'm thinking of the sun hitting my face, those mountain vistas. Of course, you're sitting there literally in some circumstances right in the shadow 
of some of the most stunning scapes in the Canadian Rockies. As of June 1st right now, Jasper vendors, those houses of hospitality, want you to know that restaurants can allow four people per table max right now outdoors. Okay, households only or or two close contacts for people living alone. So there is an opportunity for you to get out there, enjoy the fresh air, and of course, still observe all the protocols. I know I have my favorites. I mean, I can tell you about my favorites uh, at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge, the Emerald Lounge overlooking Lac Beauvais. I'm, I'm being flooded right now with personal memories of conversations I've had on that patio. The Jesperson recommendation would be the old fashioned. You've got the Moline Canyon Wilderness Kitchen patio, amazing smokehouse style meals. Yeah, there's that Lac Beauvais view. Look at that. Are you kidding me? The Moline Canyon Wilderness Kitchen patio, the smokehouse style meals inspired by food preservation techniques from Jasper's earliest explorers. The patio is literally right on the water. How about here at Marmot Basin? One of my favorite spots to hang out. You've also got, you know, Takara Restaurant right by the Athabasca River. The Pines patio that gazes out at Pyramid Mountain, Pyramid Lake, and and then, of course, like Jasper Pizza Place and one of my favorite spots, Jasper Brewing Company with heated and covered patios. Don't worry about the rain. Don't worry about the clouds, rain or shine. There's a patio with your name on it out in Jasper. And of course, if you want your own private spot, there's a lot of beautiful picnic areas around Jasper, too. Um, as a family, we love to get out sometimes, just throw down a blanket. You can make your meal extra outdoorsy by picking up one of these peak Nick experiences from Jasper food tours. It starts with a hike to a panoramic viewpoint, and then it includes a backcountry cooking lesson, which is absolutely amazing. You can learn more. Check out the, the list of the 17 best patios in Jasper by checking out their website, the Tourism Jasper website, which is an awesome feature. I mean, if patios are your thing, why not explore all 17 over the course of the next number of months? Maybe make it four or five patios every time you're able to get out there. And uh, if I may, while you're out there, speaking of the Jasper Brewing Company, there's one way to make sure that we're going to feature your cold ones on Real Talk, and that's to send us a case of them right here in the Real Talk fridge. I love this. Look at that. I mean, the beautiful can design. This is going back to that sort of old school Parks Canada motif. And uh, the Jesperson review on the Jasper the Bear Ale. Perfect for that pre 10 a.m. Mountain Time beer. It's the Jesperson recommendation. This week's recommendation for breakfast beer, the Jasper the Bear Ale. Great for lunch and dinner, too. Or that patio adventure. For more on our partnership, again, to check out our past features, check out jasper.travel slash real talk. Well, let's continue our conversation. I mean, when it comes to the economy, so there's what politicians think it should look like. Great insight, I think, from Annamie Paul. Uh, agree with her, disagree with her. It's always great to talk policy. I love stuff that that makes us kind of sink our teeth in and chew and think, okay, what does this actually look like? Is this is this tangible? Can you sell this to the public? Will this resonate with people? There's a new face, so to speak. I mean, uh, the University of Calgary back uh, just about a week, well, maybe a couple weeks ago now, announcing the start of a new professorship in sustainable and transition finance. It'll specialize in the future of finance, the future, helping organizations meet climate change objectives like net zero 2050. Professor uh, Erie Koskinen, kind enough to join us this morning. Professor, welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for being here. Did I pronounce your name okay? 
you're well enough. I'm, I'm, I'm used to all kinds of pronunciation, but I, I, so I'm not very sensitive at all. And okay. by the way, I love your 10 o'clock beer. That's, uh, you must be of Danish heritage because I, only Danes drink morning beers. Did you say only Danes? Yes, I think. Well, as a matter of fact, I am. And so your yeah. your your characterization holds true. Um, typically, I have them in my coffee mug so nobody can tell. But now I'm able to do it out of a branded can. So it works perfectly. Yeah, uh, we, we, we Finns usually drink morning, morning vodka, but not, not today. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I guess the, you, you've, got, you've got all the different preferences. You've got the Swedes, the Danes, the Finns, the, you've got the Norwegians and everybody else with all with their own breakfast routines, which is perfectly fine. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Hey, Professor, you know, one of the, I, I don't know uh, if, if this is a stretch for me or not, but... I find it particularly interesting that, you know, you've been brought in to provide guidance and leadership and insight into the future of the economy. And you're doing so at a university in a school of business that's named after Richard Haskane, who, of course, has a long and storied career in the oil and gas industry, including with TransCanada. Is there a certain irony there or no? I don't think there's irony. I think this is the best possible place to think about energy transition because we have so much at stake here. So, I mean, if you, if you go somewhere else, maybe there are no resource industries. I mean, they, they have no problems talking about net zero 2050, but here is the stakes are so huge. And if we get it wrong, uh, it's, it's, it's terrible for our prosperity and possibly terrible for our, our planet. So we have to balance prosperity and, and, and planet. So we want to be make money have high, high employment, good jobs, but also at the same time take, take care of the, the, the environment. So it's, it's an amazing challenge, but uh, I think uh, this is the best place on earth to be in this kind of position. Do you feel that you have an, an open audience uh, among your colleagues, among industry professionals uh, in Western Canada, even among your students, when you start to use words like sustainability, or transition? Is there an open-mindedness to that? Absolutely. So uh, there has been a huge change in the, in the, let's say, in the past two years. Maybe, maybe two years ago, this would have been a harder sell, but the world has changed a lot. People see how much money is going to the environment, the social and the governance funds. There's so much money flowing into this. So this is, this is a real thing. Uh, so I think the, uh, the industry is very receptive to this. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a finance professor, so I'm not thinking about, oh my God, firms shouldn't make money. Firms have to make money, have to make profits. So we, what we try to do here is, is, is balance uh, profits and the environment. And, 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 and that's, that's a tricky issue. That's what, what it makes it very, very challenging. And the, the students are really fantastic because the, the newer generation, they, they see this as, as, a, as a huge issue. So it's been a... I'm currently teaching a course for our MBAs on, on sustainable finance, and I've never seen so active students in my whole life. Very, very engaged. And of course, we don't agree on everything, and that's not the point. The point is just to think and have a discussion. Well, and, and, and let's point out the obvious that that while you may on a, on a university campus or, you know, in, in a faculty like yours, of course, you're going to encounter students, relatively speaking, young students that may have strong opinions and strong convictions on things like the environment. But they're also there in part or in whole because they want to prepare themselves to succeed in an economic or career sense. Obviously, these are people at the beginning of their careers for the most part. 
right that are seeking to educate themselves and 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 be hireable be employable in in industries that have a future not in industries that are seeing the twilight right yeah absolutely yeah so my, my students are usually I, I usually teach mba so they are late late 20s early 30s and some of them are already working a lot of them are working in the oil and gas industry and in the resource industry and then they're, and they're really thinking about okay what's the next step in the career we know that there's a huge demand for for people who, who know something about environment and social governance issues and, and, and the new finance so uh and uh and there's a huge opportunities in, in uh, traditional oil and gas industry for 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 ESG specialists. So I think that the the, the future for for our students and the future for this province is is, is still is still fantastic. I'm I'm, I'm very optimistic. Uh, Doctor or, or Professor, what what is uh like when you talk about net zero and I want to get into this report with you, this is the International Energy Agency's net zero by 2050 report, which is I mean, it's being described as a landmark document, as you wrote in an op ed for Post Media. You call it a landmark document showing a detailed pathway complete with tangible milestones. Uh, but what, what when we're talking about net zero, can, can you give us a layperson's understanding of what that looks like, what that means? So, so what the, the International Energy Agency uh, wrote in the report, they, they, they came up with one pathway to net zero. So net zero means that there are no greenhouse gas emissions, or if there are greenhouse gas emissions, we at the same time suck greenhouse, greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere so that the net effect is zero. But what the International Energy Agency said that, uh, okay, we're we going to uh, rely a lot of renewables. And as I wrote in, in, the, in the Calgary Herald uh, column, that uh, that's very, very optimistic because that, that would require us building a new solar plant, the world's largest solar plant every year, every day until 2030. So a new solar, huge solar plant every day until 2030. And uh, we already seen the, the, the uh, price of different kinds of minerals and rare earths skyrocketing. So, I mean, I don't think that is, that is feasible. And what I'm su- suggesting that, that and at least in Alberta, we rely on a little bit of our ex- existing strengths. So uh, we are world leaders in uh, carbon capture, utilization and storage. Hydrogen is, 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 is promising for us. So there's also another pathway developing our existing, uh, building on our existing strengths and then uh, and then building new businesses uh, based on those. You talk about, I mean, you say that the path forward is going to be very difficult, right? Because it calls for an, a complete overhaul of how the world is powered. I just talked to a politician, leader of Canada's Green Party, about cynicism, and, and maybe some people might say not cynicism, realism, you know, and, and, you know, this, I mean, the, the, the lazy pushback to cut to the chase, people are going to say, you know, all this talk about, you know, electric vehicles and solar panels and, and, and this, that and the other. There's still going to be a need. People are going to need oil and gas, you know, for, the, for, for at least the next 50 years. And I'd love to see somebody, you know, heat their home in Cold Lake in February with solar panels. It's not going to happen. And these are the types of, of either realistic or, or, you know, cynical comments that we see. What does that total overhaul look like put into practice? And do you think it is actually realistic for a country like Canada? Uh, that's, that's an excellent question. I think it's, it's extremely ambitious. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if the goals are not met by 2050, mm. because it, it requires a huge overhaul of our energy system, even if we don't rely as much as renewables as, as uh, the International Energy Agency's plans. Uh, but it's, I mean, the direction is clear. We have to go towards towards lower lower emissions, and uh, whether we, we reach lower emi- zero emissions next year or 2050 or 2060, doesn't matter that much as long as we go towards that 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 goal. And uh, I think that there's there's still amazing opportunities based on uh, oil and gas. So we 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 will we'll be needing for oil and gas for decades to come, at least until 2050. I don't know about 2070, but at least until 2050. But the traditional oil and gas industry won't be a growth industry anymore. And if you want to have a prosperous Alberta, uh, we need to figure out uh, new ways of making money, building on our extra existing uh, strengths. So what do you so when you come in here as this this, you know, I mean, this a new prominent role, obviously, a cool. where did you come from, by the way? What was your last post? Where were you last? So I, I've been now in, in, in Calgary for five years. OK, so I'm so, so this post is a new. I'm, 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 so I'm, I'm relatively new to, to, to Calgary. Uh, I've spent the last 12 years in, in, in the U.S., uh, in, in, in Boston and Philadelphia. I was working for Boston University at the, and then the University of Pennsylvania, and before that in, 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 in Europe. So as, 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 you, as we talked earlier, I'm originally from, from Finland, uh, but I haven't lived in Finland since 1992. So wow. Very long experience in the U.S. Well, it's cool, though, I mean, because you've had an opportunity to see how different jurisdictions are are discussing this transition, how how at a political level or an industry level or an economic level steps are being taken or not. Um, in, in your estimation, do reports like this, this net zero by 2050, the so-called roadmap, I mean, not to, not to sound like a jerk, but what do they actually accomplish? Do they light a fire under anybody? I mean, do they? What do they actually do? If you're saying that you don't you don't necessarily know that it's realistic that this transition can happen in Canada by 2050, a lot of people are going to say, "I've been saying that on my Facebook account for years." Right. So, what's the point? Uh, so, of course, we have been always we have been also sometimes pleasantly surprised by how fast technology technology advances. So. 2050 is possible. Is it realistic? That's that's a that's a really really tough tough call to say. Uh, so it might happen, might not happen, 2050, but it's going to happen at some point after that at least. Uh, but I think so. People, reasonable people, can uh, can disagree, and this this roadmap is just one scenario. And so I think the challenge is that if you don't like the scenario, come up with your own. And then and do the math and see, okay, does this lead to the, the, the net zero? And I think the huge challenges are not, I mean, not places like Canada, but it's like, like places like China, who's, who's now still building a lot of coal plants. And we, I mean, the, the case, it's a game, game over if, 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 if uh, China doesn't buy, the, buy into this. Can you, can, can we, like, can you spell this out for me? I, I'm I'm no you know as civilians as laypersons we try to understand what's going on in the world around us and and I'm hearing different things from different people all the time about China 
and about India, which leads me to believe that other people are also as twisted up and confused as I am. Right. So we've got Anime Paul, the leader of the Green Party, on 20 minutes ago talking about how China's a world leader and, and, and all these big economies are going in this direction of sustainability and environmental responsibility, working toward net zero. Canada's being left behind. And then I also hear folks like yourself with a, with a wealth of experience that are saying, you know, China's onboarding new coal plants every day, every week. I mean, China's bringing, you know, doing more on coal now than they were 20 years ago. So what's the truth? Like, what's actually going on? The truth is that both sides are true. So the, China is building uh, new coal plants more than anybody else. So if you see that coal, uh, coal power is declining, that's true in, in, in North America, Western Europe, not so rest of the rest of the world. But at the same time, China is also heavily investing in renewables. Uh, the worst, big, biggest uh, producer of electric vehicles, uh, uh, the world's biggest po- uh, producer of solar panels. So China is playing with the, the two decks of cars. So China is doing both. And it's interesting to see which way it's going to go. And China might change r- really fast uh, because they, they have, you have the ability to do that. So, I mean, but right now, they, I guess they're a little bit hedging. They're doing both. Do you uh, if, if we were to and oftentimes you'll hear politicians address this and, and typically I think I, I've noted conservative politicians uh, in particular in Western Canada will talk about when it comes to what Canada can do for the environment. Um, you know, they'll talk about exporting our technologies, for example, and that might include, um, you know, uh, carbon capture, uh, utilization of storage or whatever other technologies that may be. And I've also seen critics attack those talking points as as somewhat apologetic uh, toward the oil and gas industry or perhaps just unambitious. When you talk about capitalizing energy economies, capitalizing on existing strengths, what does that look to you? I mean, what does that look like to you both short and long term? So I'm, I'm a very pragmatic, pragmatic person. I mean, I guess most business professors are. We are not ideologues. So for me, it doesn't matter whether, whether the cat is, is white or black as long as it catches mice. So carbon capture utilizes the storage. If it reduces greenhouse gas emissions, absolutely fine. Doesn't have to be uh, um, renewable energy. Can be anything as long as uh, the CO2 emissions go down. So in that sense, I have nothing against it. I have a little bit, I don't have that much patience for seeing that, okay, if indeed emissions go down, and we do it through carbon capture utilization and storage. What's the problem? The problem is not oil and gas industry. The problem is uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And if we can get the emissions down, then we have a better future for our oil and gas industry. What do you think the what do you think the finances of all this need to look like from I mean, if depending on where you want to get to. Uh, you know, in the weeds or otherwise, whether we're talking about corporate tax incentives, whether we're talking about policies that could, uh, you know, obviously attract international investment or retain international investment. Mm-hmm. How would you describe what needs to happen or what needs to stick around with with financial mechanisms? So, first of all, uh, companies have to have incentives to invest in, in carbon capture, utilization of storage, renewables. And of course, now the increase in carbon taxes in Canada are going to give us the huge incentives to, to reduce our carbon emissions. So in a paradoxical way, I think the carbon taxes might be a blessing for our business because we can now leap from others with, with investing heavily in technology that we can sell, sell for others. And 
on top of that, I think you might need some, some investment tax credits for, for investing in new technologies. And that is already in, 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 in the works. Uh, and finally, I think that the really important thing is for us to convince foreign investors. And uh, everything that we do here in, in, in the Western Canada is very, very capital intensive. So we need foreign capital. So we need to convince uh, foreign investors that we are serious about this, that this is not greenwashing, this is for real, no matter what technology we're using. And that, that can happen only if we are very transparent uh, in all our disclosures and everybody can see what we're doing. And then hopefully even the information should be third party verifiable. So that they can say, oh guys, you, you're just, just hiding your problems. No, we're dealing with our problems, but not the way that you might want to do it. Hmm. What is what do you think Canada I mean what what does Canada look like what's the biggest difference if you're if you're to look into I know you say you're not an ideologue but but let me ask you to sort of pontificate for a moment look into your crystal ball by 2050 generally speaking in the context of this conversation how does Canada look most different from how it looks right now So if if I may speculate uh, 2050, we are selling carbon credits to the rest of the world because we are so good at carbon capture and utilization and storage, and our geology is, is very, very favorable to that. So we can, we, we can kind of suck carbon dioxide out of the air and sell those credits to other people. That could be a huge uh, growth industry. Hydrogen could be a huge growth industry for us, whether it's a, whether it's a blue hydrogen from Alberta or green hydrogen from Quebec. The Canada could be a hydrogen superpower. So we have need to invest heavily on, on, on new technologies, so building our existing strength and get away from this mindset that we are selling commodities or raw materials and start selling services and value-added manufacturing to the rest of the world. So by having uh, cutting-edge technologies here. Professor, we really appreciate your time on this. Um, looking forward to future conversations. And I'm, I mean, I, I think to me, for, for a lot of people, we just need to understand it. Again, I keep saying it at a layperson's level, but the average person wants to understand what, what the, all this talk about net zero and transition, what it means to them. Um, and, and for people, that might mean everything from their home front to their career to what the tax structure looks like moving down the line, to what government policy is going to look like. I really appreciate you giving us this through your lens, and we'll look forward to future conversations. Thanks for your time today. And if you want me back, I will have a morning beer as well. We'll give you a heads up, and uh, in your honor, if you'd like, in, in, in the interests of, of, of Scandinavian, uh, of transnational diplomacy, I'd be willing to, to crush a morning vodka as well if it would make you feel more comfortable. Whatever works for you. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, it all works for me, Doc. So we'll look forward <laughs> to that. That's Dr. Irya Koskinen uh, out of the University of Calgary's Haskane School of Business, uh, the new professor in sustainable and transition finance. That could be a new thing that maybe we could add to uh, maybe add to our because, Sarah, we have this like a, what is like a PDF that we send our guests as like the Zoom link and some background information, all that. We could we could sort of have a thing where, you, you know, you, you get to say at this swanky hotels and they have the thing you can hang on the door if you want to build your own custom breakfast. Right. Yeah. You know, we could we could sort of have like a checklist, like, you know, make sure you have proper lighting, if possible, have have headphones or a microphone. Um, and, and then what would be your preferred Beverage. You know, what would be your beverage of choice? Right. We don't want to normalize alcohol. We could make it sort of, you know, it could be chamomile tea. 
People I get, mean, I have. We have a very fancy. I mean, it's sort of how we roll here. Yeah, I mean, in the I've real talk my, studio. Oh, I mean, oh, as well as yes. my coffee. Oh, so very, I'm, very I'm well double done. fisting yeah, very, right now. <laughs> very well done. Very well done. I've seen a lot of jokes about Jameson whiskey in the comments mm. over, over the past while. Um, we 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 who live in plexiglass houses must not throw stones. <laughs> when it comes to how we wet our whistles from time to time in the Real Talk studio. Uh, I want to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers is is so excited to have opened their 16th Alberta location. You know, there's 16 Alberta locations that they're at right now. And of course, I know that a lot of you are going to be visiting the Fort Saskatchewan, Stony Plain, and the new South Edmonton locations, especially leading up to Father's Day. Coming up on their website, I'm giving you a bit of a heads up. I'm giving you a heads up a bit of sort of ahead of time here. They've got these Father's Day boxes that they're putting together. Uh, everything from you, you've got your breakfast or your brunch covered with the famous Friesen Brothers sourdough cinnamon buns. Oh, plus you've got like cheese dips and snacks through the day. They're incredible beef jerky. They, the Banja's Smokehouse beef jerky will blow your freaking mind. And then they've got their sausage coils, the steaks. They've got we, we, we picked up some. We got one ahead of time to kind of test drive it. That fresh asparagus that they included in ours, grilled asparagus and a steak to me, unbelievable. If you're looking to maybe make it a little bit easier to celebrate dad and also leave some time for Father's Day as opposed to slaving away in the kitchen the entire time, Friesen Brothers has you covered. Alberta grown, Alberta owned, and you can check them out online. Just follow the link under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. That's also where you'll find Westworld Computers. They power our studio and they want to power your life, whether it's your, your family at home, you know, Little one needs an iPad for school. Uh, maybe you're looking at those Apple watches. They look super convenient or a big iMac that I don't know. Maybe you're getting into video editing, putting together some cool family videos, maybe like an annual gift to your family members. Daryl and his team at Westworld can help you out. They've been doing it for more than 40 years. Their team of technicians also trusted. They've seen everything. Westworld.ca for more information there. And also speaking of Father's Day, the teams at Dairy Queen of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you that at their Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road locations, if you drop the name Jespo or if you mention Real Talk, that sounded weird. If you drop the name Jespo, if you drop the name, I'm picturing like Charles. Carlton Heston coming down from the <laughs> mountains with the two stone tablets. If you drop the name. He, and he would say, out of my cold, dead hands. Yeah, out, out of my cold. <laughs> I, I don't mind melding those movies together. <laughs> hey, Moses, what's up with those Ten Commandments? You can read them if you pry them from my cold, dead hands. That can be our new rich, hot fudge. Dairy it's great Queen, that we have a rabbi Dairy, waiting right now. Dairy, Dairy Queen's like, Dairy Queen's like, you know what? Actually, we're yeah, we're, we're we're good on the whole like Charlton Heston Moses meets NRA. We're good. We're good on that. Let me hard swerve to refocus this and let you know if you drop the name Jespo, they're going to give you five bucks off their famous Father's Day cake. Why not give Dad what he wants? A Dairy Queen cake on Father's Day, thanks to the teams at Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. 
Yeah, I didn't even I didn't I didn't think about the Moses reference as, as we're about to, to welcome Rabbi Jill Jacobs. Uh, I'll see if she wants to pick up on that or not. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're going to have a pretty serious conversation here. Um, the rabbi, we're thrilled that uh, has made time for us. The executive director of TRUA, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights based out of New York City, an organization that trains and mobilizes more than 2000 rabbis in their communities, bringing a moral voice to protecting and advancing human rights in North America, Israel, and the occupied Palestinian territories. Rabbi, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for making time for us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I should mention, since I'm on this show, that actually TRA is based, our main office is in New York, but we also have a Canadian presence. Great. Um, so we're also registered in, in Canada, and we have rabbis all over Canada. Can you can you tell us about the organization? So you've got rabbis in Canada. The, I mean, is this is this uh, by definition essentially a global organization? Would you say is it a North American organization? It's a it's a binational organization. So U.S. and Canada. We have more than two thousand rabbis and cantors across the U.S. and Canada who are members in uh, I believe forty seven states and I think five provinces. I might be hmm. off on that, but something more or less. And our rabbis are engaged. So we organize rabbis around campaigns, including on um, in the U.S. We work on immigration, we work on incarceration, and we work on um, on worker justice, particularly around slavery and trafficking and agriculture. And all of our rabbis in both the U.S. and Canada also work to protect human rights for both Israelis and Palestinians. And so our work includes training rabbis to be moral leaders. Um, it includes so giving rabbis the skills that they need, giving them the materials that they need. We have a human rights Shabbat program that I know that many Canadian synagogues have participated in, a weekend of learning about human rights. So our work is really, it's training, it's mobilizing, and it's also amplifying the voices of rabbis and cantors as moral leaders. Sometimes people think that religious leaders should... People will say, you know, for religious leaders, why don't you stick to religion? Why are you talking about politics? But actually, we know that if you open up the Torah, then you find out that there's a lot about what it means to build a just society. And the work of being a religious person is also the work of trying to build a just society, which is, of course, politics. Hmm. Yeah, people are uh, people that have that have not. Uh, read your books where justice dwells and there shall be no needy people that don't follow you on Twitter that maybe haven't haven't read some of the op-eds you've written some pretty prominent American papers uh, we'll talk about pieces in the Washington Post and elsewhere but might say hang on a second this is a group of rabbis that's that's advocating for Israel Israelis Jews and so-called occupied Palestinian territories you don't you don't hear about that all the time people might be trying to figure out how you reconcile that perspective or that duality, so to speak. How do you? Sure. Well, I should start by saying that when you actually look at polling data, at least in the United States, you find out that the vast majority of Jews are deeply connected to Israel and also are extremely critical of the government of Israel and are extremely critical of occupation and of settlement. So this is actually not a paradox. Just like, you know, here we're coming out of the Trump era and it's not surprising that there are many, many Americans, I would say most Americans who are patriotic and also were extremely opposed to the policies of the Trump administration. So it's not that surprising that most Jews care about Israel as a place where about half of the world's Jews live 
as a place that was created to keep Jews safe and also are concerned about the human rights of every single person who lives in that strip of land, whether they're Jewish or Palestinian, whether they're Israeli citizens, um, who, by the way, include both Jews and Palestinians, or whether they're Palestinians living under occupation. And within the Jewish community, there is pretty strong support for two states, meaning that the state of Israel would be side by side eventually with God willing, a Palestinian state, so that everybody in the region can have basic human rights, which include the right to citizenship in a country, the right to self-determination, the right to freedom of movement, etc. What do you what do you make of the argument that you'll hear from from several people, I think uh, some pretty high profile commentators that a two state solution simply is not possible? What leads you to believe that it is? Well, I don't see another solution that is possible. So let me say that first. So you can't just reject the solution that is probably the most likely and say that that's not possible, but not actually have a solution that is is really possible and that would be acceptable to both, both parties and that would is likely to protect the human rights of everybody. So the two-state solution is not impossible. It is still possible. Um, it's the one that has the most support of any of the, the solutions that are out there, um, not only in the among US Jews, of course, and the US government, but also among Israelis, among um, Palestinian leadership. So there is still support for it. Um, there's many, many plans that have been drawn up over the years that would make it possible. And the questions are really in the details. So for example, are we talking about two states with a hard border? Um, which is what we were talking about in Oslo or where a lot of people are moving now, which is more of a EU model where let's say you can be a, a citizen of Germany, but be able to travel freely to France and vice versa. So um, it might be more of a soft border kind of situation, but it's certainly not impossible. There are people out there who say, well, we tried the two state solution and it never, and it didn't work, but we never tried it. Oslo was an attempt to move toward a two state solution. But of course, the progress of Oslo was cut short by both the, of course, the brutal assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and also the terror attacks that happened throughout Israel. So it was extremists from both from both people who basically um, contributed to killing that possibility, quite literally, to killing people and killing that possibility. But it doesn't mean that it's impossible. Um, you know, we start with the question of what people actually want. So most people in most Israelis, most Palestinians, most people in the world, what they actually want is they want to be able to wake up in the morning, drop their kids at school, go to work, have enough food, travel home, not worry about anybody's safety. Like we all, you know, have visit family, have fun with our on the weekends. That's what most people want. Feel like we're contributing to our society. And the question of the, so the question is, well, how do we get to a situation where both Israelis and Palestinians can have that? Now, for Jews and for including Israeli Jews, there is you know, the state of Israel was created for as a desire out of a desire to protect Jews. We've seen over and over throughout history, obviously in the Holocaust, but also throughout history, the need for Jews to have protection. Um, Jews have been expelled from many, many countries over the course of our history and have um, been in, in many situations where even if we weren't expelled, there was oppression, there was forced conversion, um, even mass murder. So we know that experience. So the so Israel 
so Israel was created out of a desire to protect Jews. Zionism, of course, came up in the 19th century out of the same national rights and minority rights movements that produced um, you know, other minority rights and national rights struggles, particularly in Europe. And so the desire was to have a, a place for Jews to be safe. And in today's world, we still, that is still a need. Um, and so for most, so you know, the other, a lot of people talk about, well, one democratic state. And I'll just say that for most Jews, that wouldn't be a situation that would make us feel that there is a place to go, that there is a safe place to go, that we know there's a guarantee that there's a country that is going to take us in. Um, and it's, it's also not a situation, it's not a, a, a solution that Israel would agree to. When we think about the war in 1948, what Israelis call the War of Independence, what Palestinians call the Nakba, the disaster, um, we know that in that war, more than 700,000 Palestinians were expelled, moved from their homes, um, became refugees. And we also know that 1% of the Israeli, of the Jewish population was of, at the time was killed. And that is a disaster for both communities. It's a disaster that we haven't really come to terms with. Uh, certainly the Israeli public needs to come to terms with the impact of the Nakba, just like in America, we need to come to terms and do real reparations on, for the impact of slavery, for the impact of the genocide of, of Native Americans. And um, so uh, there has to be a real reckoning with that, certainly on the Israeli side, I would say also on the Palestinian side. and we don't want to create a situation where we're likely to go back to that kind of bloodshed, or at least I'm not willing to go back to that kind of bloodshed. Um, and so two states is the solution that you know, right now both um, is, is the mo it has the most support both inside of Israel and in at least the Palestinian Authority as well as in the international community. And it's a solution that would allow everybody in the region to have citizenship. That's a basic human right that you get citizenship in a country, not any country. You know, I would love to come take advantage of your socialized health care, but I don't automatically get Canadian citizenship if I want it. Um, but everybody gets citizenship in a country, um, the right to self-determination for both Jews and Palestinians, the right to freedom of movement, and all the other human rights that are supposed to be guaranteed by the country in which one lives. Um, so that would be the goal. And like I said, that could be with a hard border, so like US and Canada, or it could be with a soft border like the EU. Uh, a couple of years ago, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post, how to tell when criticism of Israel is actually anti-Semitism. It's a great piece. People should read it. Uh, WashingtonPost.com. You, you talk about criticism that crosses the line. You say, you know, Jews increasingly feel unwelcome on the left unless they abandon commitments to Israel. You write about how if the left continues to ignore that trend, most of the Jewish community will be pushed out of progressive spaces. But but then you also talk about how despite what some pro-Israel organizations would have us believe. Now, I'll acknowledge this is a couple of years ago. You say not all criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. Um, I know even in the past month, facilitating conversations around this violence, this continued violence and the escalated violence um, in this region, you know, there, there have been I mean, there's there's powerful um, and inflammatory words that are thrown around. Um, you know, I hate to sound like Donald Trump here, but from both sides, people are talking about Zionists and, you know, baby killers and colonialists. And then people are talking, you know, characterizing Hamas as terrorists. And I mean, I don't have to say it all, Rabbi, you know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. So so how do you I mean, I don't know if I'm asking the question in the right direction. How do you cool the temperature here? 
maybe take us into your piece. How do you tell when conversation or questioning Israel's actions actually is anti-Semitic? And how do you reconcile it all as a faith leader? Sure. Well, I want to start with a very basic statement, but one that's not always obvious, which is that Israel is a country, just like Canada is a country, just like the United States is a country. It's a country. It's been a country since 1948. It's a member of the United Nations. And as a country, it has a responsibility to follow international human rights law. And like any country, it follows it sometimes better and sometimes worse. So Israel is a country and you can criticize any country. Um, and you can criticize any country with harsh language if you want to, even language that many people would find offensive. And you can criticize, you can be wrong in criticizing a country. You can make, and, and you're, you have free speech to do that. Um, but I say that because when it comes to Israel, for a lot of Jews, it's hard to distinguish between the biblical land of Israel and the modern state of Israel. And that's a really important difference. So there, so Jews, the, the biblical state of Israel, Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, has been central to Jewish identity and Jewish community since the very beginning. Going back to the, the Torah, it's what um, is promised to us. It's what the people who come out of, of Egypt are, are out of slavery in Egypt are traveling toward for 40 years. So, and of course, we know, you know, outside of the Torah, we know historically and through archaeological evidence that that is where there was a Jewish presence. And of course, the uh, the temple was destroyed there, Jews dispersed, et cetera, et cetera. And for thousands of years afterwards, Jews have continued to pray three times a day, to fast several times a year in memory of that place. And so that's really important. And it's also important to say that Jews, Judaism is not just a religion, it's a people. Mm. And it's a people that has traditions and history and languages and also a land that's central to us. So, um, but fast forward to 1948, Israel becomes a country and um, a country with, I'll say, not even exactly the same borders as the land of Israel, as a biblical land of Israel, but a country that is now uh, responsible for the same human rights that other countries are have to abide by. Um, and so we have to be able to separate between saying, um, just to give a, a very clear example, um, I believe that the city of Hebron for example, which is a really um, important biblical city. It's where we believe that that um, uh, that Abraham and Sarah, as well as many other ancestors, are buried. Um, I believe that that is a holy city for the Jewish people. And I also believe that it is not currently, according to international law, within the boundaries of the modern state of Israel. There's other places on the map of the modern state of Israel that belong to other long um, disappeared tribes during the biblical period. So, um, so we have to first of all make that distinction, and so with that distinction, and I'll say that sometimes on the on the far left, there is also an attempt to erase the idea of Israel as a country. So you'll see the Zionist entity, you'll see um, Israel crossed out, you know, meet at the you know Israel crossed out uh, embassy or consulate, and one might not like that Israel is a country, but it actually is a country. And you can protest it like any other country, but you can't relegate it to being a theory. So when people talk about Zionists as opposed to Israelis. Zionists means lots of different things, but sometimes people will say Zionists when they mean Israelis, um, right? Israelis have a passport. It says Israel on it, just like you or I have a passport um, with our country on it. So I think that it's it's um, we can have whatever fights we want to have about Israel, but we shouldn't pretend that it's a theory or an idea. Um, it's a country. 
And then we criticize it like criticize any other country. So you can boycott a country. Um, in fact, um, I mean, much of the world is boycotting Syria and obviously North Korea. And my own organization is supporting a call for clothing companies not to buy cotton from China because it's grown in the Uyghur region. So you, so one can boycott a country and that's free speech. One can use any kinds of, of words to describe the behavior of a country. Um, you, can, uh, you can criticize it as much as you want. When it moves into anti-Semitism is, as I point out in that article, when you're using the classical language, the classical stereotypes that people use for Jews. So when you're suggesting, for example, that um, you know the classic anti-Semitic theory or um, uh, conspiracy theory suggests that Jews are some kind of nefarious force within society that's secretly controlling all of society. And so when you transpose those ideas to suggesting that Israel has outside outsized power, um, when you use other traditional um, stereotypes, Jewish stereotypes, to describe Israel, you know, drawing people with big noses and, and um, obsession with money, uh, anything like that. So when you're moving into that, um, into that territory. And also when you're, this is really crucial when you're denying Jewish history. So it's one thing, for example, to say, Hebron, to use my example, should not be, should be a part of the state of Palestine. It's a different thing to say, well, the Jews have no connection to Hebron or the alleged temple on, on the, the Temple Mount or not to call, you know, the, um, so to say, to pretend that Jews don't have any history there, that's erasing Jewish history and that's anti-Semitism. Um, and the other thing that I've seen much more frequently is actually erasing, that I didn't talk about in that piece, I don't think, but is actually erasing the history of anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism, it's kind of a weird word, but it means, it literally means hatred of Jews. Um, and it's a word that was created in the late 19th century to explain why one could hate Jews even without basing themselves in Christianity. So even if your objection to Jews wasn't based in religion and wasn't based in Jewish in, in Christian supersessionism, meaning why are there still Jews when Christianity was supposed to replace Judaism? So even if you're not Christian or you don't care that much about Christianity and that's not your basis, how can you still hate Jews? And particularly, how can you continue to hate Jews when Jews are being assimilated, when Jews are being emancipated in much of Europe, when many Jews are assimilating? And the answer is to create a kind of um, race-based justification for hating Jews and to create this word anti-Semitism. But lately I've seen language saying, well, Arabs are Semites, Palestinians are Semites. Why is it that, um, so actually anti-Semitism is not about Jews at all. And the, you know, of course there's anti, there's Islamophobia, there's anti-Arab sentiment, there's anti-Palestinian sentiment. That is all, uh, those are all things that we have to fight. But there's something about trying to erase that word anti-Semitism that is also about trying to erase the history of the ways in which Jews have been oppressed in almost all the countries where we've lived. And um, and that, and and trying to um, really dismiss that experience also in the in the context of these conversations about Israel that also crosses the line. Uh, Rabbi, I want to I want to circle back on the word boycott. Uh, it came up in an interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with a couple of Palestinian Canadians, and it prompted a, a fiery email uh, from a person I respect very much, a, a person who had been on the show previously to discuss Holocaust Remembrance Day. He described the interview as bordering on anti-Semitic. Um, 
let me just read a portion of it. You know, he said your show today, he said, I'm disgusted. Uh, this was back on May 14th. If people want to go back and see that interview, um, he's, he says, I've been on your show. I've been on Real Talk to discuss anti-Semitism. And quite frankly, your show bordered on anti-Semitism. Um, he said, in, in, when your guest called for boycott, divestment and sanction, BDS, uh, which has been described by the Canadian government as anti-Semitic, um, he says, you need to correct the record. Shame on you. Uh, goes on and signs off. Obviously, it resonated with me in a tough way. Um, you invoke the word boycott. Mm-hmm. Is that as supercharged of a word? Uh, do people may not realize how supercharged that word is? Can you take us into your understanding of it? Absolutely. I obviously I didn't see that show, so I won't comment on the particular Fair. guest. Um, but so I think for a lot of times, for and I'll, I just want to be clear that I personally don't boycott Israel, and Troy doesn't participate in the boycott movement either. Um, and we do support the right to free speech. So, and free speech includes speech that one might find. Um, that, that one might hate, um, what might find detestable. Um, so for a lot of Jews, this is really important to understand, for a lot of Jews, the word boycott does trigger some trauma around the boycott of Jewish businesses uh, in the very early years of, um, of the Nazi takeover of Germany, um, of Nazi rule in Germany. And um, so it's, it's just important for people to understand that that's triggering trauma. It's also important to understand, particularly for those of us in the Jewish community, that there's a difference between boycotting a country and boycotting a people. So boycotting Jewish businesses would absolutely be anti-Semitic. Boycotting a country is not. Um, Israel, by the way, is about 80% of its citizens are Jewish and about 20% are Palestinian citizens of Israel. Of course, another 5 million or so Palestinians are living under occupation. But when you boycott Israel, you're also boycotting the non-Jewish population of Israel. And you're not boycotting Jews who, you're not boycotting um, you know, Jews who are, who are not living there. Um, so when you, and boycotts are, are against uh, Israeli companies. Um, you know, I, I think that there are, uh, there are certainly some gray areas. For example, um, you know, I've heard calls from some on the pro-Palestinian left to boycott any Jewish institution that is Zionist. Um, well, honestly, most Jewish institutions, you know, we can talk about Zionism has lots of different definitions, but most Jewish institutions and the vast majority of Jews are supportive of Israel. So if you're actually supporting boycotting any institution that is supportive of Israel in any way, you're going to end up boycotting like 90% of the Jewish community. And I would say that crosses over into anti-Semitism. If you want to boycott, if you're, if you're saying, I'm not going to go to Israel, I'm going to boycott Israeli companies, that is not about boycotting individual Jews. That's about a country or about companies that are operating um, within a country. So it's just important to, to distinguish there um, between the country and boycotting people. Now, there is certainly anti-Semitism within the boycott movement, and that's why I wrote that article to be able to um, try to pull out some of the threads and explain where one crosses the line, um, but also to assert that the just a, that on the face of it, just the call to boycott is not in and of itself anti-Semitic. Rabbi, we've got um, I'm, I'm grateful to see Dr. Mana Sally is is tuned in. She's been a guest on this show before. She's an, an academic, an instructor, an author out of Edmonton. Um, 
she wonders why does protecting Jewish people, she's Palestinian Canadian, by the way, says, why does protecting mm-hmm. Jewish people and creating a space to be safe? She says, which I'm not arguing against. She says, history proves it's needed. Why does it come at the expense of Palestinian people who were already there? What would you say to her? Yeah. So it should not. Um, so it should not come at the expense of Palestinians. Look, I mean, if we could roll back history to 1948, then I think, or you know, even before that, to, ni- to the 1920s, or um, you know, when some of the the real tensions started, I think that if we could roll back history, there are a lot of things that we hopefully would have done differently uh, to in order to ensure the safety of both peoples. Um, unfortunately, we can't roll back history. I mean, if we could roll back history in the United States a few hundred years, there are a lot of um, you know millions of lives that we could have saved. And so my question is. What is it that we can do now with the goal of protecting the safety of both Israelis and Palestinians? And I really want to start from that human rights perspective of how can we say that every single person between the river and the sea has the same human rights as created. That's the international language and Jewish language. We would say they're all created in the image of God. You get the, you get human rights just by being born. It's not a reward for having for voting for a good government or um, for being it's not a reward for anything. It's just um, it comes by being born. So everybody deserves that. And I want to think about moving forward now in moving forward. As I said, we also have to look back. And I do think that there needs to be some reconciling with the history and some reparations and some attempts to repair. As I know that um, I know in Canada, you've been having a lot of conversations about um, the impact of you know the, the policies of indigenous, on indigenous people on First Nations and in the U.S. obviously we're having a lot of conversations about reparations. Um, so there has to be a way to try to you can't fix the harm of the past, but you have to be able to um, have real conversations about it and figure out what reparations mean. Rabbi, in closing, when you, I mean the conversations that you have, I mean the the membership is impressive uh, of your organization, of your agency, and I mean you talk about you know two thousand plus faith leaders, plus you have these faith communities, right? Uh, when it, when it comes to um, the conversations that that you see among you know Jews in North America, what would you characterize, or what have you noted to be the biggest disagreements? Uh, when discussing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the violence there? Well, there's lots of disagreements about um, the policies, and there's disagreements about how much to criticize Israel. I would say that the largest issue is that um, people don't necessarily have the language to speak about the, um, really to to break through some of the emotionally charged um, talking points, political language, and to think and to have a more nuanced and more and a conversation that's really rooted in human rights and in, in care. Unfortunately, the dialogue, not with even, not only within the Jewish community, but certainly more broadly, has um, deteriorated to the point that we can't have an honest conversation between people who have two different aspirations for the people in that region or who might even just agree, but but um, on some of the basics, but uh, but perhaps not on the the talking points. And so I do think that there's a real need for people to be able to sit down and um, to learn about, to really learn and grapple with what's happening in the region, um, to be able to speak to each other, and then also to take action that's always rooted in a commitment to the human rights of, of both people. I think that has to be the basis for everything. 
Rabbi Jill Jacobs, uh, executive director of, do you pronounce it Trua? Is that how you say it? You got it exactly right. Okay, good stuff. I was, I was yeah. watching I was watching a couple videos about it ahead of time. I wanted to learn about it. You know what I actually thought was, maybe I could have said this out of the opener, I guess, but what I thought was particularly interesting in one of your, uh, the, the videos explaining what Trua does and, and what it's all about was, uh, maybe you've seen the clip from a, what a, uh, from a reverend. Uh, I'm not sure if they're Anglican or Catholic, whatever the case may be, but but talking about it, they said the, uh, she said the voice of 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 Jews is so important in conversations. I'm paraphrasing in conversations about mm-hmm. morality or ethics. Um, said because you have the moral authority to comment, um, which I thought was yeah. that that kind of when I heard that I kind of went woo like that. That was kind of a big thing. It's a small statement, but it's a big statement. Thank you. Um, yeah, religious leaders certainly have that moral authority, which we're just in such desperate need of moral voices, especially in this moment in the world. Rabbi, thank you for this. We're, we're grateful for your time and your perspective. Thank you so much. You can give uh, Rabbi Jill Jacobs a follow on uh, Twitter, and uh, you can also follow the, the organization to our rabbis. Uh, of course, I link to the handles, the social media handles for all of our guests every morning around around 10 o'clock Eastern, 8 o'clock Mountain Time. I also push it out on my Instagram story. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ryan Jesperson. We've been keeping an eye on our hashtag this morning, Real Talk RJ. That hashtag is powered by the team at Park Power. If you check out their website right now, you'll realize at parkpower.ca that if you punch in the promo code 2021-RealTalk to bring over your business, your internet, electricity, or natural gas. That promo code 2021-REALTALK is going to get you 70 bucks off your first bill. Commercial, industrial, residential, they do it all. They profit share in the communities where they live and work. That's one of the things. That might actually be the first thing that caught my attention about Park Power. They're one of our few partners, I don't mind saying this, that we reached out to. Uh, A lot of our sponsors we call them our real talk builders have reached out to us we reached out to park power i said i like the way you guys roll i said i want us to do business together and they said well the feeling's mutual and then we've been making beautiful music together uh we power your soul your perspective they power your homes they've authorized none of this this is all my own ad lib promotional material but let me just say we're pretty proud to be working alongside them give them a follow on instagram on twitter follow them on facebook the team does a great job talking about things like energy efficiency and sam i'm putting you on short notice do you know the one i'm talking about the cheese photo this is out of nowhere sam does such a great job just he's got a scramble it's not a it's not a it's it's because of me sam's like could could you give me like a 30 second heads up next time this is the photo i'm talking about on their instagram did you know you can in albertville france this is the olympics off the top of my head what was it 92 right 92 was albertville france they were generating electricity from cheese what i wouldn't have known that unless i was following park power on instagram there you have it also a big shout out to the team at eden landscaping if you check out landscapeedmonton.ca you'll be able to see some of the work that they've done they've got more than 20 years worth of projects to choose from helping people turn their dreams into reality they've got uh, i mean i don't know how many crews multiple crews right now at locations uh, across the metro edmonton region and beyond helping people envision i mean you know you've been staring out at your yard all winter into the spring going is this the time we're going to finally put in that that patio that fire pit maybe that hot tub hey are you one of those that have added a hot tub this year eden landscaping is making it all look good and like mike says over at eden they love solving problems how's sherry the cherry tree adjusting by the way we've not i feel like i haven't um 
it's kind of like one of those things like when she left the studio now it's kind of like you know we were heartbroken it's like you know you get to know somebody a little bit and they say this just this isn't working out but you took her home how's she doing Sherry the cherry tree. She's doing beautifully, as a matter of fact. Do Sam and I, so do Sam and I get like visitation rights, or how does no. this work? <laughs> Absolutely not. You didn't even think about I it. I know. Well, then, you, then you'd have to know where I live, and <laughs> that was a hard no. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> no. Um, All right, fine. Well, I was gonna bring over. I was gonna bring over cherry pie, cherry jubilee, cherry that, vodka, cherry. Well, I feel like that would hurt Sherry's feelings. Yeah, that might actually be a She'd weird be like, thing to do. Um, are those my relatives she got there? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't... No, I w- thanks. I, I want to I clarify, this is no longer the Eden Landscaping spot, because I, right. I don't think they want to find themselves mired in this controversy. I don't know if this is true or not. We haven't talked much about the the, the uh, Edmonton Elks rebrand, the CFL football team okay. that, that rebranded. And I don't know if this is true or not. For my own personal selfish well-being, I hope it is true that they're offering elk burgers at the... At the uh, <laughs> <laughs> at the games that's what I'm right I mean I'm in for I'm in for elk burgers as long as they're done right because elk is a beautiful lean meat so you can't you got to do it low and slow but like an elk tenderloin is like are you kidding me but however let me just say it does feel like just the tiniest little bit weird it's like funny weird not offensive weird it's funny weird but if you're if selling elk burgers at the Edmonton elk scheme does it seem a little bit weird yes like it seems like it seems like selling like pork belly sandwiches at like the petting zoo where the pot where the vietnamese pot belly pig is sitting there being like i i can smell that yeah it's all i can smell you know they're smart <laughs> they're smart those you're f- not going to get any disagreement on this one with me yeah Zero. It's, it's, it's it's kind of funny it's like the i don't know maybe i'm overthinking it i actually i actually i've, I've been debating with friends um over the last while and some of my some of my buddies are a little bit annoyed at the name change they think they have better ideas and and actually quite frankly um some of their ideas are just terrible these guys they think they're way smarter than they are they've given me some of their ideas for names on what they would have called the team and i'm like you would you would literally have taken the team from one tough spot to another to to another immediate tough spot and and my buddy my one buddy says edmonton empire they've been talking about empire they've been talking about the esks empire for years why wouldn't you just call it the edmonton empire and i said have you paid any attention to social media where people are talking about empires and colonialism and how you would literally put like a million dollars or more into this new rebrand although the elks did it they're smart right i won't say on the cheap because actually it's there's nothing cheap about reinventing a brand you just got to change the esque to an L and yeah. everything esques becomes Elks, which is it's pretty smart. Actually, it's pretty efficient. They'll probably just use white out on the letterhead. I mean, you know, it's not the NFL. You just use white out. And but a buddy of mine says, well, you call it the Empire. And I go, bud, you know, you, you can't call it that people are you're going to get railroaded. And he goes, oh, it's like all these like loud liberals, all these bleeding heart liberals. And I'm like, yeah, but loud is right. And I mean, why do you think the name changed in the first place? I, I admire the team for changing the name. I applaud the team for changing the name. And he says to me, but it doesn't have to. No, this is a real thing. He says to me, it doesn't have to be about colonialism. It could be about Star Wars, the Empire. And I'm like, you're going to you're going to try to turn this into a Star Wars thing like this is just not this. But but believe it or not, this buddy of mine, he's not in branding. <laughs> believe it or not, that's not his profession. I, I just think, you know, if they did go with the Edmonton Empire, it would be more on the nose. I mean, 
because they were called the Edmonton Eskimos, like yeah. talk about colonialism and all that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. So just calling it the Empire is like, okay, we're just gonna we're just gonna put it right. We're, out just, there. we're just gonna call it what it is. Yeah. Yeah. No. The, and 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 word from within the team, and and this is not. I want to be clear. It's not from any uh, current executives, mm. but uh, from from people close to uh, the inner workings of that organization say that Empire was never really an option that was seriously being considered. I think they nailed it. I think it's a great logo. I think they did a great job. And you look like you have something that you're not saying right now. What no, is I, know, I, I think it's all great. Um, we're just talking about the Elk Burgers being a little like, whoo. What about <laughs> there being talk that, you know, calling the fans alcoholics? Alcoholics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they're not calling them. No, that. no, 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 no. Yeah. So, so then it's great. This is this is the perfect thing that can happen with a sports franchise, right? Sam, you and I were talking about this off off air. Unless I forget, sometimes I'm like, did we talk about that on air or off air? Off. I think this was off air. About fifty fifty. So, so, yeah. so the Edmonton football team. Now we can say the Edmonton Elks have had that section O for a long time. I realize this is getting to be somewhat of a regional niche conversation, but people that are that are listening to the podcast or, or that are going to watch this on YouTube could chime in. I'm sure that every jurisdiction, every city, every fan base has its own version. Uh, these are fan generated or fan driven uh, communities, monikers, nicknames that are not officially endorsed by the team, but they're great. And I think that there is. I, I think there's I, I would imagine and I know that someone probably today uh, will get mad at me on social media and that's fine. I shouldn't put it that way. What I mean, someone will indicate their concern to me and they will not be wrong when they say, you you know, you drink beer on the show. You talk about vodka with your guest. You don't think that alcoholics is a wrong word. You know, I, I, I grew up in a home where alcoholism uh, translated into violence or I lost my son to a drunk driver. And these are very serious points. And I take those seriously and I recognize that. I also try to find him in my life. I, I try to kind of be in the sweet spot, the middle ground where where some things I go, um, hey, I, I'm willing to change my language on that or I think that that's important or this is a point to consider. And then sometimes and, and, and I'm not always right, but sometimes you go, yeah, I kind of think it's swung a little too far on that one. And I'm actually not going to worry about that one. And I think that fans calling themselves Elkies or alcoholics, I, I think that that's a lot of fun. Then again, like I said, and I'm predicting feedback today, I have grown up in a privileged situation where I was not subjected to alcoholism and abuse. So, you know, I mean, hey, this is what the show does, man. We'll dance on two feet. One of them serious, mm. one of them frivolous. You know what I'm saying? I don't yeah, know. And everywhere in between. And everywhere in between. What do you make of it? The... I, I, I I chuckled when I heard alcoholics. I'll say that straight up. I I thought it was I mean, funny. It's funny. Yeah. I, I, but I get it. I mean, we we colloquially tack a holic onto things all the time. If you're like, yeah, you've probably met someone that calls himself a chocoholic. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And so I mean, alcoholic sounds like alcoholic, and that's when the joke comes from, and that kind of thing. But I'll you know, if if that's kind of becomes a cheeky thing that the you know the 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 fans start to rib each other with. I mean, I don't. I see that playing really well at Grey Cup parties. I think that could be that could be a lot of fun, but there has to be nuance to this. There has to be understanding, and and I totally understand that. Um, in regards to the burger, I mean, first of all, I love elk burgers. Uh, <laughs> something that I, I indulge in almost every time I go to Jasper because there's several great restaurants there where you can get a real boy. elk burger. Nice plug. There's a freebie for you, Jasper. Not a boy. Um, well, it's not a freebie. It's actually yeah, it's, very expensive. Okay, yeah. fine. <laughs> this part of the show was a freebie, <laughs> but. Um, uh, they used to have p- 
Heisenbergers at Commonwealth Stadium. And Is that right? Yeah, up until about two seasons ago, and then they took them off the menu because they were too expensive, and it drove me crazy. You know I why? Forward I forward ne- to my. Bisenberger this is why every I never game. knew this because you're obviously a guy, Sam, that's willing to either show up early, which I never do, or wait in long lines, which I also refuse to do. So which of the two is it? Uh, I, I'm, I'm good at the, you know, 10 minutes before kickoff, get a beer. Yeah. I always find some moment when we don't have the ball in the first quarter to run away and get a burger because that's yeah. when the lines are shortest. Okay, that's, uh, that's good advice. That's good to know. Now he's spilled the beans, so now there's going to be... Now everybody's going to do it. It reminds me of that Lay's commercial. (laughs) If I give one to you... Can you even get away with that now? The Lay's commercial? I mean, this is actually... Wow, this just landed in my lap, right? Do you remember it? It was was the Lay's commercial with the Inuit uh, fellas. Uh, I just remember Mark Messier. Yeah, there was that one. That's the one I remember. Mark Messier. You know, advertising works. Um, But yeah, these two guys. It's the Oilers. Come on. They're up in the. Somebody here is wondering. I think it was Miranda wondering if the Oilers are going to change their name to the Net Zero, Uh, (laughs) which is interesting. I love that. I think, you know, the name Edmonton Oilers to me, I think is just one of the most classic names. And and I would hope that. I'm curious to know. There were were probably some um, like uh, copyright or trademark issues, I would imagine, when I don't know my history well enough when it comes to the National Football League. When the Mm. Houston Oilers. Who did they become? They went somewhere. They moved somewhere, right? But when Houston got a team back and became the Texans, I, mean, I always thought the Houston Oilers uh, was such a neat design and such a neat logo, like back in the day, like a real Texas logo. Although they don't get much more Texas than Texans. Yeah. The Houston Texans. I would imagine that the proprietary, probably intellectual property for the Houston Oilers belongs to wherever they went, right? Someone in the live chat will have the answer here. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. P- people are now chiming in on the live chat. We're, we've gone completely off kilter. Um, and, you know, people are now asking Sam, like, w- what about the shortest bathroom lineup at Commonwealth? Okay. All right. <laughs> I will my I will give you guys my personal tour of Commonwealth yeah, Stadium some other day. another day. Some other day. My favorite development when it comes to Commonwealth Stadium and the bathrooms, this I don't I don't mean this to be a cheap shot at this guy, but David Staples, who's a columnist for Post Media, have you seen? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know. I, and I don't remember. I don't have the tweet obviously in front of me. I I don't know to this day if Staples was trolling everybody, and if he was, it's brilliant, or or if he wasn't. But I don't know what the women's washroom, believe it or not, I don't know what the women's washrooms look like at Commonwealth Stadium, but the men's washrooms have like these, the sinks, you know, it's like a big circle. It's like the size of a small hot tub. It's like the size of a four person hot tub. I remember and, this. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and there's the, and there's a bar that goes around it, like a circular bar that goes around it on the floor and you can hit the bar with your you foot step on, yeah. and you step on it and the water starts flowing and Staples is talking about it as a urinal. <laughs> what? Have you seen this tweet? We got to find it. I I don't know. It was it's like a classic. Maybe I don't know. Maybe you could track it down. I'm putting you on the spot here, but it's absolutely. No, of course, it's a sink. It's a it's a large uh, like a basin for people to stand around because you stand in a circle and you're facing each other and you step on the bar to get the water to run so you can wash your hands. And I was just like, that would actually be absolutely incredible to see somebody walk in, meaning no harm whatsoever and and start treating it like a urinal. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, what is it? Do we have you on uh, NDI here or no? Oh, I can, to I can talk shop it. for a sec. Can we? Can, can Sam? Can you call that up? We're gonna test. Is this the oh. first time we've ever done this? We're trying to take something from Sarah's computer. Is yeah. it going to work? He's it's got ready. it. Yeah. He's got it. The technology works. So I can't read it from here. What does it the say? Urinal, the urinal needed to solve lineups at Rogers Place. Fast, efficient. Keep your eyes in the sky. Do your biz. 
sick of hearing about this. Yeah. Oh. Now is that now I think I think it's a troll. I think he has to have been kidding. But I would absolutely love I would love to walk in and see five or six guys shoulder to shoulder <laughs> just just using that as a urinal. And what I would actually really love is to hear that they've been doing that for years and had no idea. And then to see their face the minute they realize. Can we get it like a little plaque on it that says the David Stables urinal? <laughs> Someone's going to give a heads up right now. It's, uh, there's no disrespect. I mean, he's the one that tweeted yeah, it. I, I just, mean, you know. You know, I, I could see a weird scenario coming up where, um, and I know this because this is very close to where my seats are at Commonwealth, but years ago when they renovated it and they built the expansions to Commonwealth, they... Uh, converted a women's washroom to a men's washroom just by put, changing the sign on it. So you go in and it's all stalls and it has the same sinks, but it would be a little foreign if you walked into a men's washroom and there were no urinals, but there's these big basins in the middle of the room. I don't know if that's what Staples did, <laughs> I don't but know. I'll just float that. I don't know. Um, that's the benefit of the doubt that Sam just gave. Yeah, that is the benefit, benefit of the, of doubt. the doubt. It's just just a swell guy, that Sam Brooks. Um, Craig is helping us out. He says, uh, is this okay? So here, Craig is bringing us up to speed. Says the Houston Oilers became the Tennessee Oilers, became the Tennessee Titans. And then I see uh, someone else says the, uh, what was it here that I think they said the Dallas Texans became the Kansas City Chiefs, which I think is probably a reference to a trade or a free agent signing, which I don't know. I'm very proud of myself to know know that the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs is named Patrick Mahomes and that is the end of my National Football League knowledge. I know that Tom Brady has seven Super Bowl rings. Patrick Mahomes is the quarterback of the Chiefs and uh, that's about it. I'm going to throw one more weird piece of trivia on you. Uh, former Edmonton quarterback, CFL legend, Warren great Moon. cup winner, Warren Moon played for the Houston Oilers. So he was both an Eskimo and an Oiler. There you go. Samuel Brooks. You guys, this is going to shock you. You have no idea what we're talking about. Just. I barely. Well, like I barely. I'm, I mean, if I. Eyes have glazed. The fact that there are three people having this conversation and I know the second most is appalling. <laughs> and it leads me to believe that we should stop talking about this immediately because anybody, <laughs> the, anybody that is actually a fan of the NFL is going to just be. Yeah. Mark. Mark B is watching from SLC, beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah. He says, Jess, well, I think it is a troll. He says, because it is extremely obvious that there are a huge number of urinals lining the back wall of the men's room at Commonwealth. I've got all kinds of, of, of theories. Um, oh, Peter, this is just inappropriate. Peter out of Wainwright. This is just inappropriate. I shouldn't read. Okay. I'll but read you're it. gonna. He says, you know, they need to put a Stampeders logo in the middle of that sink and then everybody would use it as a urinal. Peter, that is not appropriate. That is not nice. Please now, do that. Now, Please if, it, do if, that. It, if, it, if it was a Toronto Argonauts logo, then I don't think anybody would take offense. But um, so there we have it. Where are we even going? I'm supposed to talk about serious stuff right now. And, um, you know, what, what are we going to do about that? I don't know if it's going to happen. L let me provide a bit of a buffer before we get into We are going to talk about the Edmonton Oilers. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about Ethan Bear in just a second. And your responses, uh, almost 600 of them on our question of the week. We're going to get into those in just a second. I want to remind you right now, the teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge have the best Ram lineup in the province, period. Stamp it announce it take it to the bank not only because they're two of the biggest dealerships in the country size footprint sales volume customer satisfaction 
but because they share their inventories. So if you've got a truck at Sherwood Dodge, you're at the St. Albert location, the brand new beautiful one, but you want to see that truck, they'll make it happen. You can check out both their inventories online and of course, vice versa between those two dealerships. This is the summer of Ram, whether you're pulling a boat, pulling a trailer, whether you're truck camping, doing whatever it is to get out into the great outdoors, do it behind the wheel of a Ram from St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Also want to remind you, the team at Local Waste is sounding the alarm right now for all business owners. This is actually a serious thing that's happening. I've, I've seen evidence of it. They passed along an email. There's there's a new waste provider in town. They're taking over some contracts and they're providing some pretty misleading information to, to, to well-meaning entrepreneurs that are winding up signing onto deals that might not be great for them. If you've got a suspicious email about your waste management contract in the past couple of weeks and it stinks... Do what you should do every time something stinks. Call Local Waste. You can find Mikkel, Lauren, and Chris via localwaste.ca. They'd love to talk to you about how you can get out of bad contracts and bring your business to a company that understands integrity. That is Local Waste. Trash Talk coming up on Friday morning. We've got some great submissions. We've received yesterday... Well, I already wrote them back. I already let them know, in my opinion, the best Trash Talk submission to this point in the show's history. It's quick, it's punchy, it utilizes alliteration. It's going to be so fun to read. When the two of you were gone yesterday, I read it. I practiced it. I did a trial run. It kind of feels like it needs to end with like a Stone Cold Steve Austin can crack. Like it just needs to be like a real, it's a, it is, it's one for the ages. You're not going to want to miss Trash Talk coming up this Friday. Your email still time to get it in. Plus, speaking of all this talk about sustainable energy and transitions and solar, if you're feeling inspired and you go... So what am I supposed to do now? Like Google a bunch of stuff and try to figure it out and how am I going to pay for it and what's it going to cost? I'll tell you what you do. You go to kubienergy.ca. Jake and his team there have been in the game for a long time and they're doing solar installations right now as we speak across Western Canada. It's a busy time of year for them because they do residential, commercial, industrial, big and small. They can fit your budget and of course they handle all your paperwork too. So you make sure you're getting those government rebates that you're entitled to. There's a new program, a federal program they'd love to talk to you about. You can check that out at kubienergy.ca. Sam, why don't we tee up uh, the the results? The team at Y Station has, has, has done a great job with this week's, I mean, I should say last week's question of the week, but this week's data. We asked you about racism. We asked you about racism and discrimination in sport. Uh, this prompted by a, a, a really uh, a horrific situation. I mean, it was really disgusting, as a matter of fact, when the Edmonton Oilers were swept by the Winnipeg Jets. Obviously, a lot of hockey fans upset, and some of those fans uh, took that energy and, and twisted it into the most negative form you can find, which was to start hurling uh, racial epithets, racial slurs toward uh, one of the Oilers' star young defensemen, Ethan Bear. And uh, Ethan, uh, alongside his his partner in life, they courageously came forward and they spoke about it. It's a position that no athlete should have to be in, but athletes find themselves in those positions. So do celebrities, and of course, so do everyday people, many of them without the platform and privilege that professional athletes have. But we wanted to know specifically how you felt about discrimination, racism, and homophobia in sport. We're grateful that more than 500 of you took the poll at ryanjesperson.com. Let's get to some of the highlights, Sam. This from our official research and strategy partners at Y Station. Almost 7 out of 10 of you, 69% of real talkers do not think that major pro sports teams are doing enough to combat racism and homophobia. Almost 7 out of 10 of you. Pretty interesting statistic there. 67% of our respondents think that athletes of color 
and LGBTQ2S plus athletes are held to a higher standard, even in their personal life, which I thought was a really interesting bit of data. 57%. Sarah Hoyles is, is the biggest NBA fan in this room. All three of us fans of basketball, to be sure. Go Raps. 57%. Rated basketball as the most inclusive major sport. Get this. 10% rated hockey as the least inclusive major sport. And we'll get into that in just a bit. I'll tell you. Where do you think least inclusive? 10% say hockey. What sport do you think would have stacked up as as less inclusive than hockey based on real talk respondents. The two of you, any guesses, any guesses on a major sport that would be seen as less inclusive than hockey? If you consider barriers, golf, yeah, golf, 15% of real talkers identified golf as the least inclusive. Uh, Also among the most inclusive sports, 57% of you said basketball is most inclusive track. 49% and 40% said Soccer. Now, this is a ranking. So people were ranking them soccer. Now, what obviously do basketball track and soccer have in common? Low cost barriers. Interesting. What else do they have in common? Huge international footprints. Right. Which, I mean, you could say chicken or egg. 100%. 100%. I'll never forget traveling in Ethiopia several years ago, more than 10 years ago, and and, and seeing kids play soccer with a ball that was made up out of old plastic bags that had been tied and and, and uh, sort of twirled together, like to create these little ropes. And then they wove the ropes. I remember holding it in my hand, just looking at it. It was like unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable for a number of reasons. Number one, your heart eight. You're like, well, I don't have a soccer ball with me right now that I could leave here. Number one. Uh, but a lot of different reasons. A lot of interesting stuff. There are a lot of interesting perspectives. Sam, do we have any other uh, high level graphics from the team at, at Y Station? This is a great time for me to remind you that our uh, our Patreon supporters and we're so grateful uh, for you for the monthly contributions you make to the show to allow us to continue the work that we're doing. You know that you have your top line reports exclusive to you in your email inboxes every Sunday night, Monday morning. You get those top line reports. And of course, uh, we thank you for your partnership. That's a little way that we're able to say thank you. A great example of a celebration of diversity in sport. We left it blank for you to fill in the blanks. I love that one of the first and most common responses we got was pride tape. Um, You know, my best summer ever pizza at Mercer Tavern is supporting pride tape this month. Just seeing hockey players with their sticks taped with that rainbow, with those pride colors, so to speak, is huge for a lot of people. I know another says the presence of an organization like right to play strikes me as the type of entity that delivers programs with the goal of including kids from all backgrounds, all circumstances, the chance to take part in sport and recreation. How about this? One of you said, I cannot think of a good example of a celebration of diversity in sport from an LGBTQ2S plus standpoint. I feel, says this viewer, like most of the athletes who identify as anything other than cis, you know, don't feel like they can be their authentic and true selves. I think that's a really fair comment. And as for black and indigenous people of color, BIPOC professional athletic associations, they're not doing enough to talk about racial issues. You know, just look at Colin Kaepernick in the NFL and his kneeling during the the national anthem. It shows that pro sports organizations are terrible when it comes to handling issues based on race or sexual identity. Another says how Major League Baseball has integrated and celebrated the history of the Negro Baseball League and and, and museum and and Jackie Robinson celebrations league wide. Another one of you said the WNBA, the NBA taking action on Black Lives Matter, the, the Toronto Raptors making a statement on residential schools. 
I can think of a lot of pro sports organizations that would say we are not touching yeah, no truth no. and reconciliation or the story of residential schools with a 10 foot pole. Not a chance. Right. We'll stay in our lane on this. That's not what the Raptors did. And I won't say stay in their lane. One of my favorite comments from from this show, former Oilers captain, a very outspoken uh, community activist. I think I can call him Andrew Ference, a Stanley Cup champion, was on this show a while ago. And, and I asked him, I said, what do you say to people that say athletes should stay in their lane? He, he said, this is my lane. And he went on mm. and, and gave a great answer. And, and you can find that in our archives, either our podcast or on our YouTube channel. It's like when LeBron James wore the shirt and I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And people were just like, shut up and play. And it's yeah. just like, no, 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 That was uh, what's her face? Laura Ingram from Fox News. They yeah. told him to shut up and dribble. That's what it was. There shut up go. and dribble. Um, he had something to say to her. Uh, another says a longstanding and important example, the Special Olympics, which I love. We played on a I won't get off on this too. Once I start talking about the Red Deer Jets, I'm going to go on for like an hour. Um, played in a men's league, like a beer league team, the Red Deer Jets for a lot of years. We were owned by uh, Stanley Cup champion, Con Smythe winner, Cam Ward, former goaltender for the Red Deer Rebels. And uh, he owned us from Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, would do the owner's dinner every summer. And he'd make sure that our goalie had all new gear and we were all dressed like this is before the Jets came back to Winnipeg or the Jets came to Winnipeg. And um, so we had all the old colors and it was all vintage and it was super cool. Anyway, Wardo, as, as part of his commitment, his charitable commitment was to donate 20 five bucks to the special olympics for every goal that we scored um which was great because we played against a bunch of terrible goaltenders so it was really great for the special olympics um (laughs) can i i want to i want to just kind of maybe poke the yeah bear or kick the nest bees nest yeah hornet's nest nest, there we go hornet's nest don't kick bees nests don't kick hives (laughs) bad idea bad idea um what about the kiss cam yeah because I feel it's very heteronormative. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of organizations have taken steps to make it less heteronormative. That's the one that constantly comes up. It's yeah. one that oftentimes comes up. How do we make sports more inclusive for all athletes? Um, you know, one says rename offensively named teams. We've talked about the Edmonton Elks and the step that they took. We see other organizations. I mean, the, the Washington football team and in, in the NFL as well. How about this? Give everybody a chance at tryouts, starting from the lowest ages. Make it very clear that sports is all inclusive, all inclusive and racism or homophobia or any type of ridicule will not be tolerated. Have the same rules for parents and caregivers from the start as well. That's where the problem often stems from. Behavior is learned. I think that's a great point. But there's always that, you know, locker room talk. That they're like, no, but that's just the culture. That's just, that's just like that. It's what Donald Trump referenced, right? Yep. Uh, when, when he was busted with, what's the guy's name? Billy Bean or whatever the guy's name was. <laughs> I think Billy Bean, right? Bush. Billy Bush. Who's yeah. Billy Bean? He's a sports guy. <laughs> Billy Bean was like the GM of the Oakland A's or something, wasn't he? Billy Bean. Again, again, my yeah. eyes are glazed. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's an outfielder for the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, former ball player. Billy Bush. Did Billy, is Billy Bush back at all? Did he get canceled? He, I think, actually experienced more of a pushback than the individual who will remain nameless uh, that said the just awful comments about grabbing certain pieces of email. Huh. I'm just I'm just Googling right now. Um, this is this is relatively old. Well, this is from October of 2020. So this is like we'll call it eight months ago. Uh, this is published in Vanity Fair. Um 
Billy Bush looks back at the Access Hollywood tape, says, I needed to have my ass handed to me. Wow. There you go. He was he was not. He, uh, I don't know if I want to get into that. I have not heard the full conversation. I'd be curious to hear the full extended conversation. Well, he Could, just he I mean, from what I have heard is that he basically. In his silence and his like kind of egging the individual on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That. Um, oh, stop saying the individual. Compl- I just I, I like I have to share a birthday with the man. I don't. Oh, yeah. I like. It's a yeah, sore spot. Well, it's enough. a sore spot. Fair enough. Well, you'll get your birthday back someday, Sarah. Um, yeah, but this is all like. I mean, this is a part of what the bigger conversation is about, right? I mean, what what a fascinating conversation yesterday uh, with Julie S. Lalonde, who was on, and we were talking about bystander education, bystander intervention, and the whole idea about locker room talk. That's part of it because part of me sits there and goes. Um, you know, just here's some real talk. You know, part of me goes because they, they, they were wearing lav mics. They were wearing these, you know, wireless mics, probably didn't know the mics were hot or probably didn't realize that it was that camera was rolling. Because if, if I understand it correctly, they were on a tour bus and the bus was pulling up to a shoot. And as they stepped off the bus, the cameras would be rolling and it would be live. And a veteran broadcaster would know that once that bus pulls up and the door opens, you're on. But they're probably not expecting that the cameras are rolling behind the scenes. Correct. And so you've got this high profile guest, you know, in this case, Donald Trump. This was before he had sought the Republican nomination. Right. This was way before that. Mm. He was just he was like celebrity. He was the host of The Apprentice. He was like the the, the broke billionaire. He was like, however you want to characterize him. And 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 Trump is saying these these terrible things like absolutely terrible things he's talking about the the permissibility of sexual assault essentially if you're if you're rich and if you're famous you can grab them by the you know kiss them on the lips and they're gonna just let you do it that's basically what he said and billy billy bush uh billy bush is kind of is kind of going like yeah <laughs> right like that's kind of what you hear from him yeah, yeah. like he's not like at a boy donald yeah kid, i know oh. i know what you mean buddy ain't that the guy you know but at the same time he's like hey. and when we talk about at that level or you talk about locker room talk or you talk about on the tee box or you talk about like around the campfire or or whatever these circumstances that is what you you go well what what was what was he supposed to do was he supposed to say hey donald easy there man like yes yeah but that but that's the answer that that is what he's supposed to say like what am i what am i supposed to say in the locker room with like 22 guys when the one guy drops the other f word to characterize a guy for you know he's got a roller hockey bag i mean these are things that do happen right you know the uses the gay slur for a guy that like whatever um what am I supposed to do? Like call him out in front of my, all my teammates? Yeah. I mean, really? And yes, the mood. That is what you're supposed mood to do. And people will definitely shut up and it will be like, oh, oh. like you might even get the like, oh, yeah. Jespo, what yeah. are you like, yeah. and it's just like, yeah, but that is, that is the cost. Well, like how did, so how did, when we look at, at, at all of the words or the attitudes that have, um, you know, when when we look at the attitudes and the words that have been eliminated, it's funny. Like, I just think of like personal uh, and I, I bet you a whole bunch of people that are going to be listening to this conversation. I think of their own personal circumstance words, either you used to use um, or words that people around you used to use. And how have those changed? And those have changed and attitudes have evolved because people have taken stands and attitudes and phrases and, you know, mentalities and actions and legislation have proven to be unacceptable. I mean, that's that's basically it. And where does that start? It starts at a personal level, people's relationships, right? That's exactly how it starts. 
Thanks to everybody that took the survey uh, that, that chimed in on that really interesting information. I want to remind you uh, that we're doing our question of the week a little bit differently this week. So if you go to RyanJesperson.com, you'll see it right there. We're hoping to get over a thousand responses on this. And we're asking you, how has your understanding or your perception or the sense of your Canadian identity changed since the discovery of this grave, these 215 souls buried unmarked outside this Indian residential school in Kamloops, this former residential school, what can be done about it? And how do you think people from our history that participated in these crimes should be perceived now? In other words, we ask you about cancel culture. Takes about two, three minutes to finish it. We'd love to have you do it today at RyanJesperson.com. What I mean by we're doing it a little bit differently is we're going to wrap it up. So we present the results to you this week on Friday. We wanted to fast track this one. We wanted to make sure that we were able to discuss it before the week is out. So Friday, that'll be part of our presentation. Tomorrow's show is shaping up to be a great one. We're going to take another perspective at the violence in the Middle East, at the possibility or viability of a two-state solution, at the concept of, 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 of discussing the Jewish faith versus the government of Israel. That was an interesting angle today. Plus, we'll dig in on Bitcoin. What's going on in El Salvador and more on Real Talk. Make it a great Wednesday, friends, and we'll talk to you soon.